What makes a consistent winner in NFBC? I'll ask Toby Gavon about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 9th. It's show number 35 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Toby Gavon, discussing his successful track record in NFBC, some late-season fab bidding, and some boons and banes for 2023. And I know I said last week that we'd have an expert interview with James Anderson, the lead prospects analyst at Rotowire, and we did have a long, fun, and interesting discussion this week, only to have a corrupted SD card trash the whole thing. James has graciously agreed to come back for next week's show, and I've put a new formatted SD card into my trusty Zoom H5 digital multi-track recorder. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including injuries to some key Mets, a key fantasy catcher, and some more National League news. And Ray Murphy is along with news from the American League, including an unfolding disaster at first base with the Yankees and key prospect call-ups in Texas, Boston, and Toronto. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Minnesota first baseman Matt Walner, and in extra innings, I'll be talking about Major League Baseball's new war-based bonus structure for early career pre-arbitration players. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We're past the quarter pole. And down the stretch they come! And we're going to talk some baseball. Now, in case you haven't heard Todd Zola or me expounding on this issue, the quarter pole means the nags are a quarter mile from the end of the race, not a quarter of the way in from the beginning. And using the Belmont Stakes distance of a mile and a half, a quarter mile to go would work out to about 27 games out of 162, and that's about where we are. But enough of this palaver about horse racing, let's get the show on the road. In the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Toby Gavon, who hosts the Bat Flip Crazy podcast. Toby, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's your first time. Yeah, it is my first time, Patrick. Uh, really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I know your own podcast, the Bat Flip Crazy podcast, is really fun to listen to and really informative. So I thought, hey, why should I do all the work? I'll get Toby on here and he can do all, <laughs> he can do all of the fancy <laughs> talking. Uh, he's a, a, a practiced guy. Uh, let's start off with your fantasy baseball background, Toby. How'd you get started in the game? Yeah, I think I first uh, I first found out about fantasy baseball when I was in high school. Um, so it would have been uh, the late the late '90s, and I heard about Sandbox. Sandbox was the first place that I played. I played some points leagues there, just some public leagues. Got interested in it, and then when I went to college, uh, my buddies uh, were really really into fantasy baseball. So I played some leagues there, and 
from there, it just kind of grew and, and became kind of a passion. I really enjoy the statistical element of it, the numbers of baseball, the long season. Um, all of those things are things that I've come to love about fantasy baseball. So that's kind of how I got started. Are you still playing in any of those early leagues, especially your college leagues? Because I know lots of guys do uh, end up sticking together over a really long time because those are your formative leagues. And they, your buddies, you want to stay close to them. We do keep our fantasy football league going, but... I won our league four times in a row um, at one point. And uh, after I won uh, the league four times in a row, people kind of f- faded and, and moved over to fantasy football as the league that would, that would keep us together as a group. But we do, that group does go on a baseball trip every year where we go to different baseball stadiums. We went to Atlanta this year, the new stadium there. So uh, we have stayed together through baseball, but not through that fantasy baseball league, unfortunately. Or maybe little do you know, they all just reformed without you. <laughs> <laughs> it, it very, very well possible, yeah. What formats have you played in your fantasy baseball career, and which ones do you prefer? I started out playing points um, on Sandbox, um, and then I started playing some head-to-head on Yahoo, but really, really found my love for the game in Roto. So I play roto exclusively at this point in time i just love the the challenge of having to balance those categories you know um every every league involves different types of strategy but for roto you know how do you get uh how do you get keep those k's up high but also keep those ratios low you know how do you uh how do you get stolen bases and power how do you get batting average and power like how do you address all of those categories together Um, That for me is kind of what I love about the game. And so I pretty much play five by five Roto exclusively. I do play some OBP leagues, um, a a dynasty league. And then I'm also in Tout Wars draft and hold, which uses OBP. So I enjoy OBP leagues as well, but I really love that five by five format. That's what I've come to love. How about uh, auction versus draft? I did my first auction, believe it or not, this year. And I absolutely loved it. I can't believe I was denying myself the joy of the auction for so long. Um, but I just never like, I never really had the opportunity. I'd done auction before in, in fantasy football. Um, but man, a, a fantasy baseball auction is wonderful. And I did a live one um, in Vegas for the NFBC. And it was just incredible. Um, the ability to go after all the players that you really want. You know, you obviously don't get all of them because oftentimes the guys you want are the guys that other guys want too. But it was just really, there's just so much strategy involved. I enjoyed it so thoroughly. I'm really excited to do it again next year for sure. And, and maybe expand a little bit in my, in my auction uh, selections as well. I like that whole aspect too of the, just the strategy of how am I going to build my roster or how would I like to build my roster going in? And how am I going to assign values to the slots? Because that varies every year. And you you look around at your opponents, you look around at the players available, what the pool looks like, all these kind of factors go into it. You've been quite successful in the NFBC. Uh, I think I read you've cashed in about two-thirds of your leagues. What have been the drivers of your success? It's a highly competitive environment. What are you doing right? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I'm – that I'm known a little bit for is my emphasis on starting pitching. So really prioritizing pitching early and often in NFBC leagues. You know, there's the overall component that you have to worry about, but I'm a big believer in, in, in pitching because those ratios, you know, having the two ratio categories in pitching 
once you once you lose those ratios, it is so hard to get them back, you know, and especially in in what we've seen at least before this year in terms of the run environment, that was the case. So I oftentimes have have pretty strong pitching across the board. Um, and so that gives me a little bit of a like if you can get yourself 55, 60 points in pitching in a given league, it you know, just by kind of grinding things, working the waiver wire, staying competitive throughout the full league in a lot of those counting categories, whether it's runs, RBIs, steals, you know, down the stretch, you can, you can hopefully make up some ground, maybe get lucky on a couple hitters um, and, and, and be able to be successful. But even if you can put up 45 points in hitting, you know, you can, you can put yourself in a position to be pretty competitive. So that's kind of how it's been working this year. I generally have really, really good pitching and then the hitting isn't so good. But, but I'm slowly kind of grinding and churning and, and and moving up a little bit in the standing. So I'm hopeful of continuing that success this year, but we've got a little ways to go. I think you make a good point about uh, starting pitcher ratios and how important they are, because it seems to me that, you know, we always look at guys who hit home runs as they, we call them four category players, right? They're going to a home runs worth. It's a hit, it's a run, it's an RBI and it's a home run. So you get counters in basically in four categories. And I think, too often we look at starting pitchers as a necessary evil and we assume that, well, I'm going to get the starting pitchers because I need wins and strikeouts. So they're two category guys, but they're going to kill me in, in, in my ratio. So they're kind of two minus two net zero category guys, but I still have to have them. And I think if you can grind your way using starting pitching to get even decent ratios, a starting pitcher can become a four category guy. I mean, up until he got hurt this year, Justin Verlander was a four category pitcher. He was getting, he was helping you in all four of those categories because he was just doing really well. And I think we underestimate the power of starting pitching to be so effective across four categories and not just two of one or two of the other. Yeah. And I mean, in, in standard Roto, you've got your 14 position players and you've got your nine pitchers. So those pitchers can have a dramatic impact. You know, I, I can't remember what it is, but I think it's around like 13 or 1400 innings pitched you get over the course of a full season in like a 15 team league. Now, if that's the case and you got a guy who's throwing 180, 200 innings, he's essentially giving you, you know, one seventh of your um, contributions to the pitching category, which can have a really dramatic impact. And having just that one ratio anchor can just have a a real impact on, 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 uh, on what you can do. And then that frees you up a little bit, especially down the stretch to be a little creative with your two start pitchers, you know, um, and, and feel a little bit more confident in throwing them out there, knowing that you can take a couple, you know, bad outings, um, in search of that win or in search of those additional K's to get you there, uh, down the stretch. So hard to find pitchers who amass those big quantities of innings that help them anchor your uh, ratios, and it's getting worse all the time. Uh, I saw a story somewhere recently that uh, they figured that in the next five years, it's going to be super rare to see a starting pitcher even getting to 200 innings because of injury worries and workload management and the worry about ever-increasing playoffs is becoming a concern is for the for the good pitchers on good teams. It's so hard to find those guys that when you do find one, assuming you can, it tends to be an older guy and and that's another reason that you know we we may not be so far away from a time when 160 innings is going to be a really really productive pitcher, but that really reduces that one pitcher's ability to anchor your ratios 
compared to a guy who's getting 220 or 240 innings like we're used to even 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And then the strikeouts too. I mean, you look at a guy like Garrett Cole, and I think people make an assumption that he's having a, a bad season and maybe for a Garrett Cole season, and at least in his ERA, he is, but he's still leading the league in strikeouts and that volume of strikeouts combined with that good ratios, you know, like that is such a, such a key, key piece. So that, that I think has been why I emphasize starting pitching so much. And I really find it really difficult to move away from that strategy. So do you typically start uh, one starting pitcher in the first two rounds type of thing in the, in an NFBC straight draft format? Um, I generally start with two starting pitchers oh, to okay. start a draft. So um, the pocket aces is kind of a, a, a term that's been coined uh, for uh, not necessarily my strategy, because I know there are other people that do it as well. But, um, you know, that's what that's what uh, Ryan Bloomfield of, of HQ fame um, uh, helped coin that term for the strategy I had just because I was so, so strong on starting pitching. I actually started in some leagues with four straight pitchers this year, uh, really? three starters and, and one closer. Yeah. To, to begin my league in my, in my first draft, um, I actually got, ended up getting Buxton in the fourth, but I went, uh, Cole Wheeler, Iglesias, Buxton cease was how I started. Um, one of my main events. So really strong emphasis on, on pitching. Dylan Cease, wow, nice get in the fifth round. Yeah, I have him in in three of my big four leagues. Yeah, so he's been I'm, he's I'm, been. I was terrific. a big fan going in. Yeah, he's he's been incredible. I suspect you won't get him in the fifth round next year. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was considering including him as a as a bane for next year, uh, seeing that he went in the first round next in the in that that draft that uh, Rob DiPietro uh, pulled together. I saw that too. Uh, it was pretty surprising, but then again, sometimes those, uh, those drafts, especially at this time of year, there's a lot of recency bias, but I think Dylan Cease is the real deal. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if he becomes one of those guys that is going to appear in a lot of first rounds next year and deservedly so. I don't think that's a problem. It's a memorable season for him. Which players on your teams over your fantasy baseball career have been the most memorable super performances, uh, one season or two or anything? What, what performances by your players do you remember best? Yeah, it's funny. Like the one player that I remember most of all the fantasy baseball performances is not one that was in one of my like, higher stakes leagues. It was Ryan Braun's rookie season. Um, he just, I think he hit like 36 home runs. He, he had, uh, like 20 some odd steals. I should, I should actually look this up. So I'm not, you know, giving some inaccurate information, but, um, my God, he just came out of, out of nowhere. Like I, I didn't used to pay a ton of attention to minor leagues. So it could have been that he was a really big thing or they were expecting him to be a really big thing. Yeah. So 34 home runs and 15 steals and less than 500 plate appearances in 2007. And I think that might've been the first year that I had won that league with my friends and kind of started, started that run of, of leagues where I was successful, but there's just something about that year that he had where, you know, there's there, it's so exciting when unexpectedly you add a player of that caliber or a guy who has that type of season, because it can transform your season entirely. You know, um, we were talking beforehand just about like Jake McCarthy and those steals, but it's like when you get that unexpected production and really, especially in a 15 team league, it can, 
it can really buoy your entire team's performance. You know, just that one guy who gets hot or that one guy who provides all the steals you need over the course of a month, you know, whatever it is, like those, those are the things that are memorable for me. I'd say outside of that, Garrett Cole is another one, his 2019 season um, with the Astros. He was, he was going in the second round. So it wasn't like he was some major surprise, but he just put together an incredible season. And I ended up finishing ninth overall in the main event. And that was my first full season doing NFBC. And so I'll kind of always remember that and always have a, have a debt that I owe to, uh, to Garrett Cole. And he's been kind of a linchpin for my teams, you know, in, in subsequent seasons, including this year. I remember that Ryan Braun season, less than 500 plate appearances. He got 34 home runs. You mentioned he was in the nineties for RBIs and, and runs and a 324 batting average and a 1004 OPS. One of the great rookie seasons of all time, frankly, I think. And Julio Rodriguez this year is having a similar sort of year, but nowhere near this good. Yeah, totally. It was, it was, it was just a phenomenon, you know? And, um, it was it was wonderful to have a little bit of Ryan Braun that year. I can only imagine people who were like in the NFBC or in higher stakes leagues who had added Ryan Braun that year because man, he he was something. How did you get into the fantasy baseball industry once you were established in the game? I think it was in 2018. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, on FanGraphs, analyzing data, looking at the data talking about the data. And my wife uh, suggested, she said, you know, I know something, you should start a blog or something like that. And quit telling me about it. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Yeah. So she encouraged me. Uh, I probably would have never gotten down this road uh, without her encouragement. But I just, you know, I, I started a blog. I remember my first, it was when StatCast was first coming out, you know, and we first were really starting to understand it. So the first article I did was about Kendris Morales and his underperformance in expected um, uh, in expected metrics, you know, and and it, we didn't realize at that time how much sprint speed had to do with that at times. And so I think that's why Morales uh, was struggling a little bit and he didn't have a great season that year. But that's kind of how I started it was with a blog. And then, you know, I got invited on a couple of podcasts. I, I uh, had a Twitter presence a little bit. I mean, a small Twitter presence. And then I remember um, Bubba from Benched with Bubba. Um, he invited me on his podcast. That was the first kind of podcast I did. I did a couple other ones. And then I started my own, just doing kind of a deep dive analysis on players. Writing for me was really challenging because I would literally spend like eight hours on an article because I wanted to do that in-depth research. I wanted to share every perspective. I didn't want to leave any stones unturned. And I mean, that's that's great, but... It's much easier to do that in the podcast platform where you can really dive into the numbers. You can make sure you're talking about things. And instead of having forcing somebody to read, you know, your um, your your, you know, uh, two hour diatribe on uh, on something, you can actually just listen to it while you're doing the chores in the house or mowing the lawn or something like that. So I, I pretty quickly moved over to the podcast platform and, and haven't looked back because I just really enjoy I really enjoy being able to kind of cover every angle and, and do it relatively quickly. Yeah, I've always thought the same thing. The handicap to it, it seems to me, in podcasting is 
When you're talking about a lot of numbers, it can get a little confusing for the listener to follow along when you're, when you're citing the numbers. And of course, you don't have the advantage of being able to publish tables or graphs or, you know, the advanced charting that is now coming into vogue in StatCast and other kind of sources. But you have built a reputation for being on top of all the latest stats and the analytical metrics. How did you get interested in that side of it? Yeah, I mean, I've always loved the numbers of baseball. I mean, initially it was just BABIP, you know, that that was like one of the few things we had to go on, you know, so-and-so is, it seems like that BABIP's much higher than their career average or things like that. But as StatCast, as we've kind of developed StatCast and we've been, we've gotten a lot more granular in pitchers. I really love like um, being able to go into depth on pitchers and hitters in terms of like how their chase rates or their end zone contact rates, ground ball rates, things like that. And what I try to do is just listen to people who are much smaller, smarter than me and explain the metrics, like how they can be used, what their limitations are. And so I always think of it as like, um, it's just kind of this, it's a puzzle, you know, and you have all these pieces to the puzzle. Each player is relatively unique in terms of how those metrics impact them, right? Like, for instance, you know, Nolan Arenado, if you look at his barrel rate, it's always low and he's always got like, as many home runs as he has barrels, but you have to understand that he's one of the few few players who can actually pull fly balls as a skill. Like that's a skill he's shown year over year over year. So if you apply the same metrics to him, you know, like a barrels per home run rate, you won't get the same answer. And so just being able to look at all these different data points and try to like put together the puzzle of what this player is, what they're doing, how lucky or unlucky they you think they've been, you know, and then you know, there's always like, I always um, am bad at rookies. Like I'm famous for being so wrong on Vlad Jr. Jr. last year. And by famous, I mean like, you know, in, in relative terms, of course. But like, I was really down on Vlad Jr. last year. You know, like, ah, there's nothing special about him. He's got the high ground ball rate. But that development isn't always linear. And that's where I oftentimes will miss out on things is not seeing the potential or not seeing that, you know, elite level that that some of these guys can get to. So I've always just loved um, diving into those metrics. Uh, I recently did this thing called Strength Finder, which is like this um, kind of not personality test, but just like how you operate. And my number one strength was analytical. And essentially, they're like, you just like to get into the numbers, see graphs, see patterns, see things like that. And I was like, uh, I think this is spot on. So um, it's just something I enjoy for some bizarre reason, but it does bring me a lot of joy. I remember being down on Vladimir Guerrero too, but it was because we saw him in, uh, at first pitch Arizona in the Arizona fall league, uh, fall stars game. And he ripped a ball off the left field fence. I swear to you, it didn't go more than eight feet off the ground. And it hit like a, somebody thumping a bass drum out there and we're all going, Ooh, look at this guy. But when you looked at him, he just didn't look like he was in shape. And I wondered how that was going to work. And as he worked his way through the minors, he didn't seem to get much better in shape. And it's, that's a non analytical thing, except you open your eyes and you say, this guy's as big as a house. I can't see, first of all, I can't see him lasting a third base, even though he had a cannon arm and still does. I thought he's going to have to play first base, which means they're probably going to get him to try to hit for more power, blah, blah, blah. And you talk yourself into these reasons not to like a guy because actually a lot of, I think, fantasy baseball analysis is talking yourself out of guys so that you can focus on the guys that you do want. And then he came to uh, camp a couple of years ago, I think the 2019 season, and 
I didn't get to see any of the exhibition games really. I watched a couple on TV, but he lost 40 pounds in that off season and he, he really adjusted his diet and all that kind of stuff. And of course he was just, he was just raking the whole year and I had determined that I wasn't going to have any shares and I wish I had. Uh, when you look at analyzing hitters, and of course this changes over time, Toby, but what are your go-to metrics? What are the ones that you start with to make sure that you have a handle on what you want to look into further? Yeah, so I think there's a, there's kind of four primary things that I look at. The first one is approach at the plate. So looking at um, O swing or chase rate, depending on you know what what site you're using. So how frequently does a player chase on pitches outside the zone? You know what this tells you is number one. Generally, it it correlates really well with walk rate. So you know it's going to help on getting on base. You know scoring runs. Um, also, when you unless you're uh, you know Vlad Senior. Uh, chasing pitches outside the zone doesn't necessarily work out well. So you don't actually want to make contact on pitches outside the zone because generally it's going to work out poorly for you. And then look, take a look at contact. So, you know, how frequently is a player making contact? So that could be Z contact or contact, um, depend, uh, depending on the site that you use. Z contact for, on Fangraphs is in-zone contact. So I'm really trying to think like when the ball is in is over the plate like how frequently is the guy swinging at it right um and making contact so that's that's another piece of it and then i want to know how frequently depending on the player again how frequently they hit the ball in the air you know one thing with vlad jr that we saw last year is i think he dropped his ground ball rate by like 11 or 12 percent now generally when you see that huge of a shift in somebody's ground ball rate, there's some regression the next year, which we're seeing now with his ground ball rate around like 48% or something like that, but still, still some, some improvement. So I want to know how frequently they hit the ball in the air. Cause that's going to tell me a little bit about their power potential. Now, if I'm going after Billy Hamilton, you know, I, I'm not as interested in how, how frequently he's hitting the ball, you know, in the air, but um, that's one piece. And then there's the quality of contact. And so that's really looking at barrel rate. It's looking at, exit velocity on line drives and fly balls. You know, I know there it's max exit velocity. I know there's, you know, differing opinions on how useful each one of those things are. There are some people will put that will point to like their 95th percentile, you know, uh, max exit velocity. So on like the top 5% of balls that they hit or the top 10% of balls that they hit, you know, how, uh, what's their exit velocity on those, but really understanding, okay, you know, like how, how good of approach does this guy have, have, have at the plate when he swings, how frequently does he make contact on it? How frequently is he hitting the ball in the air to give me a sense of what the power potential, both ceiling and floor are. And then what's the quality of contact that they're producing when they do make contact, um, on a regular basis. So hard hit rates, things like that. So those are generally the, the I try to keep it relatively simple with all of the different, you know, metrics that are out there. Those have been kind of the tried and true, four things that I really try to focus on for a hitter in addition to speed swings at strikes hits the hits the strikes hits them hard hits them in the air that's that's kind of what you want except uh, you know I was talking to Gene McCaffrey once and he was he told me he was listening to an analysis where somebody complained that Billy Hamilton was only hitting like 21% fly balls or something like that and McCaffrey says to him that's exactly what he has that, to do. That's great. The more fly balls he hits, the worse off you're going to be having him on your roster. You, you have to bear in mind those kinds of things, right? Uh, so you, is the go-to metrics for pitchers pretty much the mirror image of the go-to metrics for hitters in far, uh, avoiding contact, uh, getting ground balls, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, generally. Um, 
So I think with pitchers, pitchers are a little bit more interesting because there's so many things that they can do that really change the pitcher they are. I mean, how many times have we seen like worst pitcher from last year becomes one of the better pitchers from this year, right? So the things with pitchers that I'm looking at, yeah, very similar. So I'm looking at O swing. So chase rate, how frequently can they get batters to chase on pitches outside the zone? Number one, that's going to lower their walk rate, which is really important. Number two, you know, if they're making contact on pitches outside the zone, which is much lower than in zone contact, you know, then, um, then it's going to be poorly hit balls, you know, choppers, ground balls, things that are really easy to, um, you know, figure out. Um, and then, or, or not figure out, but, uh, not, not, not going to be home runs. Generally speaking, I then look at in zone contact specifically for pitchers. So I want to know when a pitcher throws the ball over the plate, can they get swings and misses? Um, if you look at the Z contact leaders on any given year, that's generally outside of K minus walk rate, which is kind of the go-to one metric that I would look at the in zone contact rate is oftentimes you know, a portrait of the best pitchers in baseball, because what they're able to do is when they get behind in the count or, you know, uh, to get ahead in the count, they don't mind throwing the ball over the plate because they know they can get batters to swing and miss, whether it's because they have an elite fastball or, or it's because they've got good breaking or off speed stuff. So I look at that. I look at swinging strike rate, um, and CSW, uh, swinging strike rate. I, I look at much more than CSW. Cause again, it tells me like how frequently, on a per pitch basis, are we getting swings and misses? Um, CSW can sometimes be a better articulation for certain pitchers of their strikeout potential. There are certain guys like Aaron Nola, for instance, where you know the swinging strike rate isn't necessarily overpowering, but he gets so many called strikes because of that curveball that he throws um, that you know that it that it can be a better reflection of of what he's able to um, produce. Um, I also look at ball percentage, which is something that um, Baseball HQ was really helpful in the forecaster. There was research that was done and it was added as a metric, as a better predictor um, than pretty much anything outside of walk walk percentage itself of, you know, walk percentage. And so just how frequently is a guy, you know, getting getting strikes? Um, so I look at those pieces and then I also look at K, uh, K percentage and walk percentage as well. Um, obviously, those are important. And then the, the thing where it's a little bit different than hitters is with pitchers, you know, a tick in velocity, two ticks in velocity is oftentimes the difference between a pitcher being good to great or bad to good. Um, and I think consistently every year we've seen that the guys that make that huge jump, whether it's the Lucas Giolito a couple years ago, the Blake Snell a couple years ago, the Carlos Rodon, you know, of last year and this year you know, what oftentimes is the difference is that velocity and that uptick in velocity. So oftentimes in spring training, I'm always following, you know, on Twitter or on Jeff Zimmerman used to keep a uh, velocity um, reading board for spring training. I'm always kind of looking at that and trying to identify it. And then the other piece is just a per pitch basis. So looking at any pitch mix changes that a pitcher has, or if they have some elite offerings, seeing potential in them if they throw it more and maybe they fade a pitch that isn't as good. So really like diving pretty deeply into pitchers, you know, on kind of like a per pitch level in terms of what they might be capable of. I noticed you didn't mention much about movement and this is uh, something that I've had discussions with here on the show and outside of it. And 
there are some analysts who tell me I don't need to look at movement because what I'm more concerned about is swing and miss, which is what movement is designed to create. And if he's getting swing and miss, I assume the movement is sufficiently deceptive or uh, astounding or whatever that I don't really need to know whether it's 17 inches vertical, 14 horizontal or vice versa or anything like that. And then there are other analysts, I say, they really want to know about the movement, particularly because they want to see if it's changing over time. Yeah, I'm much more in the first category. I think I kind of work backwards on that. So what I'll, what I would do is say, hey, you know, this pitcher's swinging strike rate has gone up. You know, why? You know, like, is it that they fight? Is it that they're a left-handed pitcher and they face the Marlins? You know, um, or is it that there's actually been a change? Like a good example of this was Zach Plesak in the shortened season. You know, I'm trying to find a reason why a guy has gotten better, right? Like just an improvement in the metrics that themselves is not necessarily indicative for me. And Zach Plezak was a guy I just couldn't explain. And so I didn't end up drafting him anywhere because like we saw an increase in the swinging strike rate, but we didn't see an increase in the velocity. We didn't see an increase in, you know, movement of pitches. We didn't see an increase in spin rate. There really was no explanation that I could come up with. And, and for me, I need an explanation, like just fundamentally, like I need to be able to explain why a guy has gotten better. If their metrics have just improved, but they're the exact same pitcher, then it's probably a small sample uh, bias, right? Or like they 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 hit a really nice patch, or maybe they got they had one outing where they had twenty swinging strikes, right? And so that means that they don't even have to get a swinging strike in the next start to have that ten percent plus swinging strike rate over those two you know outings or whatever it is. So I'm always looking for an explanation. So if a guy's swinging strike rate, like you mentioned, improves, and then I can look and I can say, oh, there's there's a different, you know, maybe they're throwing the pitch differently. There's more horizontal movement. There's more vertical movement. The release point has changed, something like that. Then, I, then I'll use it or spin rate or something like that. But I generally don't get that granular. I find that oftentimes, you know, what, what you really need to understand are those, those metrics that I explained. And, and that may change down the road as these metrics develop, but I think it still, still works for me. I entirely agree with that approach. The idea that we have these super granular metrics, I think they're way more valuable as validation, as checks on on what you're seeing in the actual game results that you're interested in rather than having a lot of value in and of themselves. Uh, What difference do you think there are in metrics for starting pitchers versus relievers, if any? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's like a ton different than starters and relievers. I think one thing that I that I'm that I like to do, I love rolling average graphs, and I think they're a lot better for starting pitchers. You know, because for a reliever, there's just so much variance in performance. You know, there's so many fewer pitchers, there's pitches they're throwing. There's so much, so many fewer innings that they're throwing that you can look at a guy and say, ah, you know, and and I often do this, so I'm criticizing myself here. I'll look at the last 15 for a relief pitcher and I'll be like, oh, I'm not that interested in this guy because the swinging strike rate is down or the O swing is down or whatever. And this other guy has great metrics, but for relievers, you really want to look over a longer period of time because there's just so much fluctuation. So that would be the one thing. And then also understanding what the baselines are. You know, it's one thing when you have a starting pitcher who's got, you know, a 13% swinging strike rate, right? That's, that's borderline elite. That's, that's a really good swinging strike rate. For a relief pitcher, you know, a 13% swinging strike rate is kind of a starting point, right? You, you see those elite guys like the Edwin Diaz, they're at 18, 19%. 
you know, that's the one thing is just understanding the baselines and having higher expectations for what the metrics for a relief pitcher are going to be versus a starting pitcher. Toby gave on hosts the Bat Flip Crazy podcast, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League news. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield passes out some mulligans for 2022 underperformers, including Chris Bryant, Trevor Story, and Jose Barrios. The speculator column is just one of the great resources available all the time when you're a member of the team at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch player news reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report and leading off our National League news and our old friend Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in New York. Quite a bit of news being made by the Mets. They were hoping Max Scherzer could avoid the IL with a left oblique issue, but no such luck. The Mets finally placed Scherzer on the 15-day IL. Phil Hertz covers the team for playing time today. What are the fantasy ramifications with Mad Max on the bench? IL, re- IL placement was retroactive to Saturday the 3rd. Uh, Mets called the injury not significant and said they hope he'll be back after the minimum, which puts him back on the mound on Sunday the 18th versus Pittsburgh, almost like a rehab assignment. The Mets made a number of other pitching moves, but none are expected to have fantasy impact. Veteran left Claudio Alexander Claudio was added to the Mets' active roster in Scherzer's slot. Claudio has appeared in the majors every season since 2014, but results getting worse over time. Last time he had a big league XCRA below four was 2018 with AAA Syracuse this year, a 4.30 ERA. So not a lot of news there, except that Scherzer won't be pitching. The the, uh, Mets got a bit of good news, which we'll come to in a second, but uh, they also had some more bad news. Outfielder Starling Marte has a non-displaced fracture of his right middle finger and will not speculate how he might have suffered an injury to his middle finger, but what happens next? So far, the Mets are downplaying the injury and calling Marte day-to-day. Nevertheless, a trip to the IL remains possible. Uh, We still have Marte as the primary left fielder, but cut 10% off his remaining playing time. Uh, Tyler Naquin gets a bump, and um, we'll we'll see where they go from there. But uh, hopefully Marte will not be out, uh, out too long. Nick, even if Naquin does get a bump, it doesn't seem like he's really going to be fantasy worthy in all but the deepest of leagues. No, I think so. Naquin has not done done all that well this season he's 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 had good days here and there when he's played but uh not someone you want to jump onto to to put uh, on your roster and the good news i referred to earlier when we were talking about scherzer is that the mets were able to activate carlos carrasco from the il Uh, phil hurts covering this story as well what do we expect from carlos carrasco well carrasco missed nearly three weeks with an oblique injury uh, before starting the mess game on september 4th it did not go particularly well he yielded five runs in three and two-thirds innings, although four of those were deemed to be unearned. And Carrasco was expected to continue in the Mets rotation, not expected to go deep into games for at least a couple of more starts. Uh, we're now projecting Carrasco to get 8.5% of the Mets innings the remainder of the season. Uh, so uh, we'll see if he can get back, in, uh, back into shape uh, and uh, do better than he did the first time out fairly quickly. 
They also had called up Adonis Medina from the minors. He gets sent back. And I guess Phil Hurt says he could pitch sometime between now and the end of the season, but probably not in high leverage. So it doesn't look like Adonis Medina is anything to worry about from a fantasy perspective either. In Chicago, the Cubs placed catcher Wilson Contreras on the 10-day IL. He's got a leg injury. Tom Kephart covers the Cubs for playing time today. What happens to Contreras' playing time while he's on the IL? Veteran backup Jan Gomes becomes a regular catcher with Contreras sideline, and he gets a sizable playing time bump. Although his power and contact skills have faded from his peak, Gomes can still be useful in deeper formats with regular playing time. So uh, if you're hurting a catcher and he's on the on the uh, waiver wire, someone to take a look at. Boy, this is bad news for anybody who has Wilson Contreras at the catcher slot because I mean, most players, it's tough to find, if you have a reasonably good player and he goes on the IL, it's going to be tough to replace him from the free agent pool unless you're in a, you know, 12-team mixed or 10-team mixed or something like that where there's talent aplenty. But, and even in 15-team mixed, there's usually something, but, but it's starting to get to the point, especially with catchers, where you lose a Wilson Contreras and there is not going to be anything near Wilson Contreras quality at the catcher slot in the free agent pool. It's really just a dead loss. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so getting someone of that quality out of the free agent pool is is very very difficult, especially this late in the season. In Philadelphia, the Phillies, gosh, they have come roaring back in the in the playoff race, but they just seem to have one injury after another. Now it's Nick Castellanos who goes on the IL. He's got a right oblique strain. They called up an outfielder named Dalton Guthrie. I have to confess, I've never heard of Dalton Guthrie, but Phil Hertz covered the story for Playing Time today. What's the latest? Castellanos has had a, had a disappointing season, and now it takes a turn for the worse. For the season, he has a 236 uh, expected batting average, 91 PX. Uh, news is still a bit sketchy uh, regarding the seriousness of the oblique strain, so we're presently leaving him with 35% of the playing time, but it's possible the injury could ultimately cost him the rest, uh, most if not all of the remainder of the season. Uh, main playing time beneficiary of his absence will be Matt Veerling. Matt Veerling has been playing semi-regularly through although his numbers don't scream out roster me, except in very, very deep leagues, a uh, 232 expected batting average, five homers, seven steals, over 252 at-bats. Phil says Guthrie's going to provide depth for the Phillies, which is kind of a code word for he's going to sit on the bench and uh, and wait for somebody else to get hurt. It seems like, Nick, we've been talking about this Matt Veerling guy and that whole Philadelphia outfield situation all season. It has been a, a real problem for them. It has indeed. It's been a, been a definite problem for them. And Veerling is a guy we've we've uh, we've mentioned several times. And uh, he, he hits, he's hit a few home runs. He's stolen a few bases. He's somebody you look at. But that two thirty two expected batting average, uh, you know, unless you're really in, really hurting in the outfield, and there are lots of outfielders out there, uh, Matt Veerling's probably not a guy you want to be grabbing anytime soon. And we should say that while his XBA is 232, so is his actual batting average, so he's full value for it. But there's no unexpected luck that's affecting Veerling's batting average in one direction or the other. His skills are pretty much 232, just like his batting average is. After missing three games, San Diego put infielder Brandon Drury on the seven-day concussion IL. That was retroactive to before those three games. Jock Thompson covers San Diego for playing time today. Who's going to benefit with Brandon Drury on the shelf? Uh, catcher Jorge Alfaro came off the IL to take the vacated roster spot. 
Drury can come off the IL as early as this weekend, so he doesn't lose too much playing time yet. Alfaro was in the lineup Monday night versus Arizona instead of catchers Austin Nola and Luis Camposano. Nola's in an 0-for-13 slump. Uh, Alfaro was 4-for-15 with a couple of home runs at AAA, hinting that he could get into some games uh, to see if he can carry that production level forward. If he does, it'll be a step up as he was batting 252 with seven homers and sub-400 slugging percentage and 254 plate appearances before the injury. But with Sandio really struggling to score runs, he who hits will play. Yeah, that seems like that seems like a pretty good analysis there. A 252 batting average is actually pretty good for a catcher. You could certainly do worse, but of course, as you said, seven homers and 258 plate appearances, that's what, about maybe 16, 17 on a 600 plate appearance year, and catchers don't usually get 600 plate appearances. So not really a big power source here, although again, he is a catcher, and uh, you know we talked earlier about how difficult it is to replace the Wilson Contreras of the world. A guy like Jorge Alfaro might actually be a decent replacement if that's w- if that's what you can get. Right. I mean, he's got he's he's better than he's better than some guys out there. If he can, especially if he can carry forward what he was doing at uh, at AAA. Um, so that, that four for fifteen, a couple of homers at AAA while he was out. He could uh, could uh, make some noise, a little bit of noise for for a couple of weeks if he's in the groove. That said, four for fifteen is what about two fifty ish, something like that. So it's not it's not like you're going to suddenly get a three hundred hitter out of this guy, especially when you look at his his plate discipline. He's a thirty six percent strikeout guy, four percent walks. So apparently he'll swing at anything that's uh, come within a mile of the plate. And one other cautionary note: a three seventy BABIP, a thirty seven percent hit rate. He's actually maintained uh, pretty high levels of hit rate over the years in Miami and Philadelphia before he came to San Diego, and 37% again this year. So he's doing something right, but when you look at his batted ball projections, I mean, there's a lot of ground balls. He's got pretty good speed, so maybe that's where he's getting a few extra hits. And a 25% line drive rate this year is propping that thing up a, a little bit as well. But as I said... Not a bad replacement if you have to replace a catcher and Jorge Alfaro's available. Sure, take a chance, but don't be expecting that you're getting, you know, Carlton Fisk or Johnny Bench or anything. Absolutely. In Arizona, the Diamondbacks called up Ryan Nelson, a prospect, and uh, he had a really good first game. Jake Crumpler covering the story for playing time today. Tell us about Ryan Nelson. Ryan Nelson uh, went seven shutout innings in his debut, uh, starting his career on the right foot. Um, considering his success, his minor league pedigree, and Arizona's desire to limit the innings for the rest of their starters, he should make uh, one start a week through the re- remainder of the season. Uh, pitched extremely well, as we said in that in that debut. Uh, seven strikeouts, no walks in seven innings, uh, and uh, did not allow any earned runs. So uh, here's a guy you might want to take a look at. He's not going to start. Innings are going to be limited, but uh, – Certainly someone who, who might help uh, ERA and whip through the rest of the season. The Arizona death chart at BaseballHQ.com shows Nelson as the sixth of six with 7% of the total starting pitching innings behind Thomas Henry. And then, of course, Bumgarner, Kelly, and Gallon at the top of that rotation, barring injury, are not going to create a lot of opportunities. But, you know, Ryan Nelson is one of those guys, especially if you're in a, a dynasty-type format or keeper-type format, you might want to take a look at him. He's, uh, as I said, got off to a decent start. That's the, that's always something. But, you know, you can't take one start and say, oh, good, now I know how his entire career is going to go. 
Right, absolutely, definitely. You know, a single start. So the batters don't have any any book on him yet. They'll get that fast, uh, and we'll see if he can maintain that level of uh, of um, performance down the road. In Colorado, a couple of items. First, they put uh, Jose Iglesias on the IL. Alan Davison covering the story for playing time today. What happens with Jose Iglesias' playing time? Iglesias was hit in the hand by a pitch in the first game of a doubleheader on September 5th, and we'll need some time on the IL to, to shake that injury off. Uh, it seems that he should be back before the end of the season. In his place, uh, Alan Trejo and uh, Garrett Hampson will cover shortstop duties. Uh, Jonathan Daza came uh, off the IL, Daza returns after a few rehab starts in AAA from his dislocated shoulder. Uh, he mentioned at the time that he was injured. It wasn't as bad as the last time when he missed months with the same uh, malady, and he was right. So we've got 35% playing time for Iglesias, given 20% more to Trejo and 10% more to Hampton. Uh, as for Daza, the recently recalled Sean, Sean Bouchard had started six games in a row. Uh, Daza will likely compete with him for playing time. Also, some established veterans have been seeing less playing time lately in the outfield. Uh, also updated total playing time for first baseman outfield Michael Toglia, who was covered by Alex Becky in last week's frequent flyer, I believe it was. He goes up to 60% of the playing time, which looks a little bit interesting. Then you got Bouchard Daza and Connor Joe as well. And all of these guys got into a column by Dan Marcus. He's a playing time tomorrow analyst who covers the National League West. And in his analysis of Colorado, he also talked about these potential changes in the outfield in the Rocky Mountains. What's going on with that? Well, and, and you know, the, at this point, the, the Rockies are beginning to look ahead to next season and decide, uh, make some decisions about who they have back and who, who's going to do well for them, who they might try out. Connor Joe put together an impressive second half of the 2021 season. Uh, that pushed him into a leading position to earn a starting role in this season. Uh, things began well enough in the, in the current campaign, a 43 BPV, nearly everyday playing time, a combination of first base, left field, and hitter throughout the first half. And despite the relatively positive start, there were plenty of warning signs in his profile, highlighted by a 78 expected power index and a 244 expected batting average. And then in the second half, things have gotten worse from a skill perspective for Connor Joe. Managed only a 252 on base percentage, 26 BPB. Uh, started then to lose playing time in long stretches as a result. And most recently sat out seven consecutive games through last Saturday. Uh, and that's been true even in the absence of Chris Bryant and more recently Daza's absence. So uh, the team appears intent on giving Michael Taglia and Sean Bouchard a look in the outfield. Taglia is, is a guy who's kind of interesting, both is, in the terms of the outfield equation for 2023, uh, but also uh, as a first base base possibility. Uh, Taglia, it seems, is a, is a potential defensive whiz at first base. He can dig balls out of the dirt, uh, and, and in being able to do that may put himself in a good position to, uh, to be the regular first baseman next season. The thing to watch with Taglia, however, is his hitting. A big switch hitting first baseman, serious power from both sides of the plate, uh, and that's, that's always very good, of course, playing in Colorado as, as your home park. Uh, a big dude, uh, 6'5", 226 pounds, uh, ample size, more strike zone to cover. And so far, looks like a true three outcomes guy in, in projection. Uh, scouts, most on his hit tool, say he has a problem uh, with passivity, allows hittable balls past early, and uh, falls behind in the count fairly regularly. 
and most scouts note that he struggles mightily low in the strike zone with breaking stuff, and his swing isn't geared to do much beyond uh, ground out, uh, even if he does get the bat on the ball with the low stuff. So those things are going to are going to cause problems, but given the power that this guy has, he's someone certainly worth looking at. We're looking now at uh, so far as in his major league career thus far, eight for thirty-two. Two homers, seven RBIs, a 250 batting average, 294 on base percentage, uh, 857 OPS. So until the pitchers figure out they may be able to get him out by throwing the ball low in the strike zone, if they can get it over the plate, this guy's got, got some serious potential. Uh, certainly a guy to take a look at if we head into next year. Uh, CJ Kron's uh, contract is up this year, and so uh, we, we doubt very much that uh, Colorado will be renewing that. Uh, may put Tagli at first base instead. Well, Colorado, of course, has a reputation for not being very aggressive, promoting their prospects and preferring to go with even kind of washed up sort of veterans rather than giving their young guys a try. But uh, that technique really hasn't paid too many dividends for Colorado. So maybe they're thinking in a different vein now. Uh, the one thing that jumped out at his line so far this year, and I know it's only 34 plate appearances, but a 563 slugging percentage is pretty impressive, even in Colorado. And uh, that gives him a 313 ISO. But the problem, as you alluded to, is he's not getting on base a lot. He strikes out a lot. These are problems that are going to be exploited if he doesn't fix them. And I think time has proven it's pretty hard to fix those kind of problems. Yeah, it is very hard to fix those kind of problems. And the pitchers will catch on on uh, very quickly to the fact that he struggles, especially with stuff low in the zone. Uh, and they, that may be a, they, they like to keep the ball down there anyway. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if he's able to make an adjustment when they start throwing the ball low wide most of the time. Uh, and as we said, he apparently doesn't have a swing that allows him to put a lot of hard contact on the ball when it's in the low part of the zone. When I looked at his uh, call-up report, uh, every time a player gets called up from the minor leagues, of course, Baseball HQ issues a call-up report on the day or the day after, usually, and they rated him an 8E prospect, which is a pretty interesting combination because the 8 refers to his ceiling, which uh, at a level 8 is considered an everyday, solid, regular player, but the E represents his potential to actually reach that ceiling and it isn't good it's down around 30 percent and whereas uh, an a rating would be around 90 percent almost a sure thing according to the scouts at baseball hq so that's to me a bit of a red flag and i was looking at the colorado rockies depth chart and in the outfield listen to these percentages that we've got listed for the remainder of the season uh, charlie blackman 25 percent in the outfield 45 in dh Michael Toglia, 20%, Connor Joe, 40 Bouchard, 40 Bryant, 20 assuming he gets back from injury, uh, Garrett Hampson, 30 Daza, 20 Sam Hilliard, 15 a guy named Winton Bernard, whom we haven't even mentioned, gets 10 And the only guy you could say is a really a regular in that Colorado outfield for the rest of the season is going to be Randall Gritchick. And so it seems to me like if you're looking for some kind of help in the outfield down the stretch, it could be that Gritchick might be the only guy you could really be legitimately interested in. Although if you manage to get a hold of Charlie Blackman, uh, and he's no Charlie Blackman of, of yesteryear, but he is going to qualify at outfield, even though he gets most of his uh, plate appearances at DH, there's n- not a lot of help in Colorado for the outfield from a fantasy perspective. And I dare say not a lot of help for Colorado on the real baseball field either. I, I, I think you're, you're right about all of that. And 
you know, the, the only real help they've got is if Chris Bryant actually manages to get back on the field this season. Uh, and uh, that's something to keep an eye on. It may be that guys have, have finally dropped Chris Bryant uh, because he's missed so much time. Uh, if you're looking for something the last couple of weeks, be aware of whether he's on your waiver wire. Yeah, I bet he's on the waiver wire, especially in shallower leagues where you just don't have the luxury of maintaining a Chris Bryant on your reserve. Nick, thanks a lot for helping us out. Always a pleasure, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time as we head down the stretch. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and analyst Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, PD. We start in New York, where the Yankees have a headache at first base, literally. They put first baseman Anthony Rizzo on the 10-day IL on Tuesday, retroactive to Saturday, because he had some very wicked headaches that started after he had an epidural injection to treat his lower back pain. Chris Olson covering the story for playing time today. Then the Yanks put DJ LeMahieu, the obvious replacement for Rizzo at first base, on the IL. He's got a toe injury, which I guess has been bothering him for quite a while. So at the risk of starting an Abbott and Costello routine, who's on first? Yeah, not Rizzo for at least a few more days, right? Uh, And you're right, the obvious backup is now out, so we're down to the third string. Uh, As far as Rizzo first, you know, good news, bad news. First of all, I guess no truth to the rumors the headaches came from overexcitement at the idea of the shift being banned because I he's everyone's sort of touchstone for the type of player who's going to be going to benefit from that. But this is an actual medical malady, not a, not anything to be uh, quibbled about here. Uh, so he had an epidural to try to calm down the back spasms, and it seems to have worked. But I guess the uh, cascading effects of that epidural were these headaches. So he needs to. Uh, he needs to lay down to make the headaches go away, which is obviously not playing first base. Uh, so he's out for a little while, at least until early in the week. And the Yankees need to make do until then. And what about LeMahieu? Yeah, like you said, that toe injury, I guess, has been lingering for a while. Uh, he'd been playing through it, but this week, I guess they decided to give up on that. Maybe because he hasn't been playing through it with any effectiveness. He's in the last month or so, I think he's 12 for his last 83, which um, the calculator in front of me, because I can't do this in my head, comes out to a 145 batting average. No extra base hits and a 336 OPS, which is not helping the team. So they've decided to try things like orthotics, maybe some injections too, although I don't think Rizzo's going to tell him that's a good idea. Uh, so we're going to see what happens there. Rizzo could be back first. He could be back Tuesday. LeMahieu can't be back till next Friday. So until then, Ronald Guzman is up. Uh, he started on Thursday, and we may see more of him this weekend. And uh, you know, Marwin Gonzalez, who's the jack-of-all-trades, you can put him anywhere and have him go 0 for 4, is also conceivably in the mix. Uh, Guzman probably starts versus the right-handed pitchers, uh, given that his OPS versus lefties is a, a robust 554 for his career. So uh, it'll be Guzman versus righties, maybe Gonzalez versus lefties, and hope that Rizzo and or LeMahieu get back quickly. I watched the Yankees-Twins game on Thursday, and their batting order had Isaiah Kiner-Falefa batting cleanup. This is not a good thing for the New York Yankees. Uh, what about Matt Carpenter? 
Yeah, I don't think IKF is the kind of protection that Aaron Judge is looking for in the lineup, right? As for Carpenter, reporters saw him at the ballpark on, I think it was Thursday this week, but he was still wearing a walking boot and rolling around on one of those kneeling scooter type things, which certainly doesn't suggest that his return is any time in the near future. In Texas, the Rangers announced a call-up of top prospect third baseman Josh Young, and he's been active about a month in rehab after left shoulder surgery, and it's been a string of health problems for Young. Rod Trusdell covers the Rangers for playing time today. What do we expect from Young? Yeah, as a re- as a reset, you know, back early in draft season before he got injured, uh, he was a pretty interesting draft target. It looked like the Rangers were going to give him the opening day third base job and sort of plug him in and just leave him there. And then he, uh, I, I think it was right before spring training or sometime close to spring training, he ended up having, uh, I think it was rotator cuff surgery on the left shoulder, which has obviously cost him most of the season. Uh, but going back to pre-injury, our Baseball HQ scouting team had given Young a rare 9B rating, which is an elite ceiling with a 70% chance of achieving it. Uh, He's a plus hitter in terms of both uh, batting average and power potential. Um, You know, not great range at third base, but a good enough arm to stay there. So, you know, should be at least average defensively and, you know, hopefully pretty soon a plus for the Texas lineup that certainly could use one. So what will we expect from Young in a short run for the rest of the season in Texas? So he got the call up yesterday, and he's supposed to be uh, making his debut tonight uh, against the Jays, presumably at third base. Uh, you know, Truesdale does Rod Truesdale, who covers the Rangers for HQ, uh, does point out that you know, despite the one month minor league assignment, this is still a you know, essentially rehab time from a very serious injury. So we should probably temper expectations for the balance of the season. That said, most days, I think he's going to be at third base, maybe a little bit of DH as he, as needed a uh, couple of days off, but he's going to, you know, they're going to take a good look at him now um, over that month in the minors. He had hit uh, pretty well uh, an 843 OPS with six homers and six doubles. So he was showing that the, the bat that we expected all along is there or nearly there. Uh, there are some warning signs. There were some strikeout, uh, you know, some swing and miss there. And, you know, he wasn't really uh, working the count, taking many walks. So, uh, you know, that's something to keep an eye on as he settles into the majors. Uh, there's a platoon split there that we want to keep an eye on as well. So, you know, again, this is maybe not the optimal finished version of Young. So we'll see what happens this month. The, you know, from the Rangers' point of view, they want him to get some reps to show that he's healthy and be ready to go for 2023. I looked at some video online and boy, it's line drive power for sure. And he doesn't need to get an awful lot of, of loft to get into the home run trot. I, I think he's going to get a lot of extra base hits and a lot of them will turn out to be home runs in the long run. The, as you said, I think the big weakness here is that he has struggled against right-handed pitching already being a right-handed bat. And if he continues to struggle, then he's going to be in the wrong side of a platoon and that can't be good. That said, oftentimes we see players like this with this just gift for hitting uh, figure out that lefty-righty uh, pitching difference pretty early in their careers, and that's something that we're going to keep an eye on. But definitely, I think that Josh Young is going to be a target for keeper leagues, dynasty leagues, all those kind of formats right now, if you can get a hold of him in your free agent pool. 
yeah, and in terms of you know who he's taking the playing time from, uh, you know, Ezekiel Duran has been manning third base most days for the Rangers. He will probably move into more of a utility role. He could play some second base. He could DH. Um, and he also hasn't been hitting much either. He's batting 236 with a 643 OPS, striking out 25% of the time. So he could sit some too. Uh, but also, I think as the Rangers get into sort of September, bring your kids to see our kids kind of mode. The likes of Charlie Culberson and Brad Miller and Cole Calhoun are probably all going to be getting less playing time here while people who are potentially part of the future of the Rangers like Young and even Duran get more playing time. Miller and Calhoun and Culberson all around 625 OPS. And I think Calhoun, who's on my one of my fantasy teams, has a 590 OPS this year. So certainly the Texas won't miss that kind of performance if they substitute in some of these young players and it's high time, I guess. In Toronto, another top prospect has re-arrived. You could say the Jays recalled catcher Gabriel Moreno from AAA. What are the playing time ramifications here for a team that's really battling to get into that playoff round? Yeah, they're really go- the, the Jays are really going all hands on deck here. And I think uh, Moreno is up because they think he can help them in that playoff push, as you say. And why not? He's been smoking the ball in Buffalo over the last couple of weeks. He's been uh, hitting 370 with an OPS uh, approaching 1,000. So he's hot and they can use a hot bat. Uh, going back to when he was first called up, uh, I think it was back in May, uh, our baseball HQ prospect team rated him as an 8A prospect, which is a solid regular ceiling and a 90% chance of achieving that ceiling. So the question all along was how he was going to fit into this uh, sort of three-catcher mix in Toronto with Alejandro Kirk and Danny Jansen. He was up earlier when one, both of those guys weren't particularly healthy. Uh, but now that they're all there, and obviously with expanded rosters, they have the flexibility to keep Moreno around. Uh, but there's a chance that Moreno's going to displace Jansen, who's really been struggling the last uh, the last couple of weeks since coming off the IL most recently. He's only hitting 211 with two home runs since he last got activated. So, uh, you know, Kirk can, Kirk, Kirk can catch a bunch. And if he doesn't, we might see Moreno back there. We might see both Kirk and Moreno, uh, you know, probably going to see Les Jansen, I think, is the uh, short-term outlook. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, the Blue Jays broadcasters on a game the other night really made a hullabaloo out of the fact that Alejandro Kirk had caught for three straight days and three straight games. And that seemed to be a harbinger of what's going to happen with Alejandro Kirk down the stretch. He's going to see, I think he's going to play every day. They just need the bat in the lineup. And Jansen seems to be the odd man out if Moreno gets any kind of time at all, because he might be the guy they want to spell Kirk behind the plate while Kirk continues to hit in the DH spot. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And when they called up Moreno, he didn't play a ton, but the fact that they were calling him up with Kirk back the first time when Jansen was hurt sort of suggested that they had more confidence in Moreno as a receiver than Kirk. So presumably that's still true now. A double whammy in the Toronto outfield. Meanwhile, they put Teoscar Hernandez on the paternity list. And then I think in the very next game, they had Lourdes Gurriel Jr. leave with a leg injury. He was running really hard and kind of lunged for the bag to not be doubled up. Uh, and he walked off the field rubbing his left hamstring. Uh, Tim Cavanaugh covered the story for playing time today at Baseball HQ. What happens while Teoscar Hernandez and perhaps Gurriel are both out? 
Tiaskar should be back pretty soon, maybe even before the end of the weekend. That's a you know a day or three on the paternity list. Uh, Guriel, we're a little less sure. You know that um, that left Tammy is concerning, uh, especially because after the game, the um, the Jays didn't say, "Oh, he just needs a couple of days," or he tweaked it. They actually sent him out for an MRI, which uh, is kind of which kind of raises the. Uh, the eyebrows a little bit waiting for the, you know, the second piece of bad news to kind of fall there. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, Rymel Tapia probably gets in the lineup. He's been the fourth outfielder for a while now. And, you know, especially, uh, you know, as a left-handed hitter, he'll handle the good side of the platoon for a couple of days as needed. I think uh, Kevin Biggio can also figure in there. And of course, you know, if we want to talk about guys who can't hit, they also have Jackie Bradley and Bradley Zimmer around if they want to uh, focus more on catching fly balls. And, you know, like I was joking earlier, going over four on a regular basis, neither one of those guys is, uh, is all exciting. Isn't all exciting. And then there's Whit Merrifield who hasn't done much since he was acquired up there in the trade deadline, but he's another candidate. They've been moving him all around the outfield, first base, second base. I think he even pitched last week, didn't he? Yes, he did. And uh, of course, Part of the problem might be the injection. <laughs> Returning to that theme, oh, yeah. the, the uh, COVID vaccine injection, I'm sure somebody's going to blame him for that. Bradley Zimmer has a 466 OPS. I think it might be the lowest OPS I've ever seen from a player on a major league team for, for any length of time. And the funny thing is they waived him. He got picked up. Then he got waived again, and Toronto picked him back up. And even the the television announcers were wondering, you know, what's going on here with Bradley Zimmer because – you know, as you said, you've already got Jackie Bradley. I mean, Zimmer's really can run. He's a really good center fielder, but I don't think he's that much better than anybody else that the Jays have that they should be carrying a 466 OPS. Unless they plan on using, maybe he's going to steal some bases pinch running or something like that. Uh, but he does. He seems like a very one-dimensional player. He can run, and that's it. So uh, don't ask. Don't add Bradley Zimmer to your team anytime soon. Uh, Toronto also optioned right-handed starter Mitchell White they got from the Dodgers. He got sent to AAA, and they recalled right-hander Zach Pop, whom they got from Miami in another trade. What's the update on this situation? Yeah, really just a huge squandered golden opportunity for uh, Mitch, Mitch White. Uh, you know, if you remember going back three or four weeks, they basically said, we're putting you in a rotation. Your job is to be better than Yusei Kikuchi, which is a low bar. Yeah. And he, <laughs> he completely did not meet it. He, he tripped That's over right. the bar. He tripped over the bar. You, know, and, you know, to put numbers behind tripping over the bar, I mean, you know, in five starts, he gave up 20 earned runs in 20 innings, which you don't need to – I need a calculator to tell you is an ERA approaching nine. Um, and it's gotten worse since then, and not not even against good competition. He faced the Cubs and the Angels um, and in, in his last three starts, and that was 12 innings and 18 earned runs with 19 hits and seven walks. I mean, you, they were at the point where they just could not continue sending him out there while they're, as you said, at the top of this section, you know, trying to win games and in a playoff push. He was actively undermining that effort. That leaves a fifth rotation slot open, and I guess that's going to matter a little more as they have a stretch coming where they're going to have 11 games in 10 days. There's a, a one or two doubleheaders coming up. They're really going to be scrambling for starting pitchers, and I'll answer my own question because they used the opener uh, strategy one time earlier this week, and I think they may try that again because their bullpen's actually pretty good. And if their choice is, do you throw, uh, you know, um, 
Kikuchi out there, well, he's in the bullpen now, and I don't know that they're going to stretch him out. Uh, White could be recalled, actually, <laughs> in spite of the uh, track record, because they are just so desperate for pitching it. And further complicating matters is their next couple of games, I think, are at Texas, and they probably think they can compete without committing any of their top pitchers. And that might let them put uh, Kevin Gosman and Jose Barrios to join Alec Manoa against Tampa, which is much more important in the context of the playoff race for the Jays than beating up on uh, on Texas. What do you think? Yeah, that's probably right. And I would imagine this weekend against Texas, they get some flexibility knowing or you know being pretty confident that by lining up Gosman, Barrios, and Manoa to go against the Rays, that they'll get some some length out of those guys so that they can probably blow out the bullpen this weekend against Texas if they need to. And obviously they would love to uh, you know, get a blowout probably in either direction and let Kikuchi soak up some game, some, some innings in a game that is not close and give him a 10-run lead and he just might be able to protect it. I don't know, but maybe. Yeah, Ross Stripling's been pitching pretty well. I imagine he'll get one of the starts against Texas, but what they do uh, other than that, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, moving along, Baltimore reinstated right-hander Tyler Wells from the 15-day IL. He had an oblique problem and they optioned right-hander Spencer Watkins back down. Ryan Williams covers the the story for playing time today at Baseball HQ. I saw that Wells was used as an opener Wednesday versus Toronto opening for Dean Kramer. It didn't work out tremendously. What do these two guys' roles look like, you think, for the rest of the season? Yeah, that was interesting. I saw that too. And looking at how Ryan Williams is allocating the playing time here, it doesn't look like we're viewing Wells as an opener as much as that was more of a tag team start and that they going forward or next time through the rotation, I think they're both going to start and that we've got Kramer as the four and Wells as the five. Now we'll see if that really holds Wells only threw 34 pitches in that first appearance off the IL. So it might be a couple more times through before, you know, before he is treated as more than an opener or we'll see if he ramps up that pitch count. Um, but Kramer appears to not be getting bumped from the rotation. So, it was Spencer Watkins, uh, as we mentioned, that got got moved out, um, and he, you know, he's made 19 starts this year with an ERA, you know, in the mid fours, kind of doing even that with smoke and mirrors, a uh, a caper nine that almost looks like another uh, out of another era with uh, you know caper nines that start with a five you don't see anymore, but he's been under six strikeouts per nine, could walk in two and a half guys per nine, which, you know, is unremarkable either way. Certainly not a pinpoint control, low strikeout guy. It's a, you know, pretty average control, low strikeout guy. So he's bumped out and he goes to triple a, but you know, he's in triple a for now, but that's probably just a, uh, a holding spot in case another need arises in the coming weeks. In Minnesota, the Twins, who are also scrambling for a playoff spot, called up a starting pitcher, Louis Varland. Rick Green, for playing time today, covered the story, and I'm sure the first question we all have is, who's Louis Varland? Yeah, and my question, you know, sort of related to that is, why haven't we heard about this guy before, right? <laughs> we, we've talked, I don't know how many times this summer, about the back end of this Twins rotation, and Dylan Bundy and Chris Archer both getting knocked around and there have been some cameos from Devin Smeltzer and we made fun of them tapping Aaron Sanchez a couple of weeks ago, you know, that they were, they were just fine trying to find anybody who could give them, you know, not even five innings, but three or four innings in the, the back of this rotation. And here's this Louis Varland and his minor league numbers are pretty good. He's you know, thrown, he started the year in double a through 105 innings down there with a three thirty four ERA, uh, you know, a, a uh, 
three to one strikeout to walk ratio. Then he went up to double A, triple A, excuse me, just in the last couple of weeks. He's thrown 20 something innings there with uh, 32% strikeout rate, 4% walk rate. So the Twins have obviously finally reached the conclusion that he's better than Chris Archer, Dylan Bundy, Aaron Sanchez, and whoever else. So he is uh, now up and taking Tyler Molly's spot in the rotation. Uh, Molly, they, if you remember, he has a uh, shoulder inflammation dating back to like mid-August, and they were hoping that that would be a very minor miss a start or two thing, and it's proven to be worse than that. He came back and went right back on the IL. So anyway, Varlin got the pitch against the Yankees earlier in the week and you know looked really sharp. Five and a third innings, two earned runs, one walk, seven strikeouts, struck out Aaron Judge. Gave up a home run to Aaron Judge, so you know he's he's now in really good company there. Uh, but you know, is that certainly enough of a showing to think that he's uh, going to get some more work in this rotation? Because again, the candidates to uh, that he's competing against are a very low bar. I was looking at the projected pitchers for the next little while, and nobody seems to have Varlin pitching. They still seem to have uh, Sanchez going out there. Um, Devin Alka Smeltzer, you mentioned uh, the possibility Bailey Ober's going to pitch they have some double hitters even and and still we don't see Varland as being indicated as a projected pitcher so I do wonder what's going on there but we have him like ninth of nine on our depth chart still and uh, the roster resource has him way down the list as well I, I I'm I'm with you here I, I don't understand why they wouldn't give this Varland kid a chance yeah he got taken for a home run by Aaron Judge, but if that's a disqualifier, then, you know, 55 other pitchers should be looking for work as well. I don't, I don't understand what they're doing there, but it's, that's their call. And they, they seem to think that they know what they're doing. I don't know. Uh, Kansas City reinstated right-hander Zach Granke from the 15-day IL and option right-hander Max Castillo to AAA, uh, Ryan Williams for playing time today. What do we expect from Granke for the rest of the season? Yeah, so we restored his projection back to where it was before he got shut down for a couple of weeks uh, in terms of innings. So, you know, we project him to stick the rest of the year in rotation and, you know, do his thing, throw in the mid-80s and hang up about a 450 ERA, a whip around 135, not many wins, not pitching deep in the games, not many strikeouts per nine, just sort of, you know, I think he's become the epitome of uh, soaking up innings, as it were, right? Um, as for Castillo, he goes to the minors, for the moment, uh, if you remember, he was part of the aforementioned Whit Merrifield transaction with the Blue Jays. Um, he got a couple of starts while Granke was out, and they weren't bad. Uh, nine and two-thirds innings, total of three earned runs, eight hits, eight, eight strikeouts uh, against only two walks. So, you know, he didn't uh, disqualify himself there. And we'll probably uh, – we've left him with a couple of innings in his projection, figuring that he'll uh, he'll be back sometime in the last couple of weeks of the year. I have to say this is something that surprised me because Zach Greinke is clearly not part of the future for Kansas City, and they're they're really bringing up a lot of their kids to see what they've got, and you'd think that they'd want to see what Castillo has rather than seeing what they know Greinke has, which is, as you said, Ephus pitches and, you know, the old double whammy wind-up and, you know, stuff from back in uh, in uh, Bingo Long's All-Stars and Traveling Motor Kings or whatever that thing was where they're messing around with that kind of stuff. I don't get it, but again, uh, there's lots of stuff about Major League Baseball I don't get. In Boston, uh, Sox outfielder and first baseman Franchi Cordero, and according to the injury report, I don't even know what this means, sprained both sides of his ankle and was placed on the 60-day list that ends his season. They also made news by calling up top prospect Tristan Cassis and Chris Olson for playing time today. Uh, who figures to get the playing time? 
it's Tristan Cass's season in Boston, and I'm personally happy about it. Uh, Abraham Almonte also came up onto the active roster uh, to back sort of backfill the outfield component of what Franchi was doing. Uh, but Almonte probably won't see a lot of playing time out there. He'll back up Tommy Pham, Alex Verdugo, Kike Hernandez, who just signed an extension for next season. Those guys figure to be the everyday outfielders for the next month. But the big news is in, in at first base where Casas takes over. I've made fun of the Bobby Dahlbeck, Franchi Cordero platoon a number of times on this uh, podcast this summer, and that's now over. Dahlbeck's down in AAA. Cordero is nursing both sides of his ankle, I guess. And Casas gets to be the everyday first baseman. He'll be backed up or occasionally spelled by Christian Arroyo, I guess. Uh, Casas off to a slow start. He's two for his first 15, although he did pop a home run in Tampa earlier this week. Hopefully we'll see some more of those as a Red Sox fan. Our uh, scouting director, Chris Blessing, said that Casas reminds him of Freddie Freeman, which got me irrationally excited. So that's uh, that, that's good news for those of us in Boston. Uh, whether he can hold on to that comp and hit, even hit the ground running, of course, is a uh, is a bit of a different question. Uh, but the power is legit. That's sort of his calling card skills. So if you're looking for lightning in a bottle power over the next four weeks, he's going to play, he's going to swing, and maybe he'll get a hold of a few. It's uh, It's not a bad spec pickup. Of course, in, in the aftermath of Cassis being called up, there was a lot of commentary online of various prospect websites and fantasy baseball websites all talking about it. And I saw a lot of division of opinion about, about Tristan Cassis, and it was pretty stark. It, there wasn't a lot of middle ground where basically the people were saying what you were saying, you know, he's a good good player with good power and we don't know, but there's a lot of people who think he's going to be the next coming of Freddie Freeman. And there's a lot of people who think he's going to be the next coming of Franchi Cordero. And there doesn't seem to be any middle ground between them, at least in the chattering classes. Although of course you don't, you don't get a lot of clicks if you're uh, in the middle of the road. Yeah, this will be an interesting one to see how that plays out. Uh, I, I always love the cases like that where there's a wide difference of opinion. I think the other thing that is interesting here is I think we will get a definitive answer. I think you know, what we don't know is, I guess, what the Red Sox actually think, although they've decided it's time to find out. Uh, and I think that what's going to happen here is he's going to get a long look, not just this month, but I'm very confident he's going to be the first baseman for the bulk of 2023, and they're going to give him every chance to demonstrate for himself which category he belongs in. So it's not going to be those one of those cases where he gets a cup of coffee, he gets sent down, he gets a cup of coffee, he gets sent down, and they never really give him the chance to own the job. He's going to get the chance to own the job. So um, good or bad, some of those divergent appearance, opinions about him uh, one side of that will probably eventually have to own up to uh, to not being right, and we'll find out. Finally, Ray, at Baseball HQ, we have columns called Playing Time Tomorrow, and these are terrific opportunities for our HQ team analysts to look at the future roster possibilities for all five teams in each division, and then they report them on a division-by-division basis. And this week, Jock Thompson, hey, remember him? He's had your old job, or you have his old job or something. Uh, Jock looked at the American League West beat and mentioned a name who is something of a blast from the past. I can remember when Seattle first baseman Evan White was kind of a big noise, but he was last seen trudging down the 509 to Tacoma, apparently never to be seen again, but now he might be seen again. Yeah, Jock is always good at uh, keeping track of some of these names of the past or ones who fall off the radar and likes to add them back to our radar. It's a uh, 
it's something I, I always pay attention when Jock does. In this case, I, I did catch the uh, Agate type transaction a few weeks ago where they the Mariners activated White from the IL that he'd been on all year an option to, to, to Tacoma, as you say. Uh, as a reminder, you know, the, he's got an interesting skill profile that we haven't seen for a long time, in particular really good plate steals and bat speed that the Mariners uh, had at one point given him a six-year contract with a couple of team options, you know, one of those lock you up forever kind of deals before he ever appeared in the majors. And pretty much nothing good has happened since then. Injuries and inability to make consistent contact have scuttled every opportunity he's gotten in Seattle so far. Um, his first time around, he hung up a 165 batting average with a, an appalling 59% contact rate over 300 plate appearances. And then after missing most of this year, he's finally showing some signs over the last month or so in the minors. Uh, he's only hitting 242, but with seven home runs, that 12% walk rate that's very much in line with his uh, with his prior profile and scouting reports. And he's cut the strikeouts down quite a bit. So that's uh, probably the most encouraging thing. Given the Mariners where they are in the playoff race, I don't think we're going to see him see a lot of major league pitching this year. But he's still on the 40-man roster, so he could sneak on the roster in the last couple of weeks, or he could still be in the long-term plans. Well, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out this week, and we'll talk to you again in seven days' time. Look forward to it. Thanks, PD. Ray Murphy's a co-general manager at Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Toby Gavon, the host of the Bat Flip Crazy podcast, coming to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I want to remind you of another great article at BaseballHQ.com. In the Starting Pitcher Buyer's Guide, columnist Stephen Nickrand looks at skills surgers since July the 1st, including Michael Waka, Spencer Watkins, and Blake Snell. And don't miss the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It's another Friday full edition featuring two expert interviews, the first with Tanner Bell from Smart Fantasy Baseball and the second with James Anderson, the lead prospects analyst at Rotowire who had an SD card eat his homework. Plus, we'll have all our usual great stuff, our National League and American League news analysis, and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Tanner Bell and James Anderson next Friday on another Friday full edition of Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Toby Gavon, the host of the Bat Flip Crazy podcast. It's a podcast you really should be listening to. And Toby, on the podcast this week, you and your co-host Brian Entrican, uh, he calls himself Bubba. He's pretty well known on Twitter and in the podcast universe. You guys were talking about the previous weekend's fab bidding, and you related an anecdote about being outbid by a single dollar on a player who might have been a difference maker in what was a competitive league. What happened there? I generally in fab am very conservative. Um, I don't like to spend a lot of bids, a, a lot of money on any one player, but Dustin May was on the wire as everybody was aware of last year. And I really need starting pitching in this league. And so I kind of, I think I had about 150, $160 left at that point in this league. And it's um, for NFBC, it's a super, it's a standalone, you know, pretty, pretty high buy-in league. And so it's really important. And I'm, I'm, thankfully in first place right now, but uh, Jeff Zimmerman and Fred Zinke are, are on my tail. So I, I don't feel 
good about that uh, at all because they're they're both incredible players in their own rights, and then combined as a unit, they're uh, they're pretty formidable. So I really needed started pitching, and Dustin May was there. I don't think there's going to be another starting pitcher that gets on the wire that is anywhere comparable to what Dustin May is is capable of providing. And so for me, I was really aggressive, you know, and I was looking at you know, the fab bids and I, I put it in there and I said, you want to know something? There are a couple of players that can go higher than I can because, you know, while I, you know, there's just some players that, that haven't used their fab, whether they're not paying attention anymore or whether they've just, you know, kind of uh, restrained themselves on fab or, or whatnot. And so I wanted to be aggressive, but I also wanted to leave myself where I'm not in a bind because what I love being able to do is down the stretch, you know, when you really have a precise idea of, which categories you need to move in, what you need to do, how many strikeouts it's going to take, you know, to get that additional point is being able to really put, put down the hammer, you know, and being able to not only win, you know, a starting pitcher or a, a hitter that you really want, but also being able to keep them away from, from the competition, right? Because there's so few players at the end of the season that can really make that, that difference. And so I was willing to jeopardize that. And so I went to at 111 and I got beat at 112. Um, and in this same league, I, I lost Corbin Carroll 39 to 39 this week. Um, so it's been a little bit of a brutal week, but as I've thought about it, you know, one of my approaches really to fab is, is if you look at the research and the process by, uh, by Jeff Zimmerman and Tanner Bell, I think does a really good job of articulating this is, is, you know, the kind of sweet spot for fab success is in that like $30, $40 range where, you know, guys maybe separate themselves from the pack a little bit, uh, but you're not spending a quarter of your fab or, you know, a 10th of your fab or more than that on those guys. Because generally the reason why players are on, on the waiver wire is for some reason, Dustin may, he's coming off an injury, right? And he's a rookie. So in the NFBC, you know, you weren't able to add him beforehand. There, there are reasons why guys are on the waiver wire, and generally there aren't guys who can distinguish themselves uh, that much. And so I'd rather take kind of a scattershot approach, you know, take a shot on 10 guys for 150 bucks instead of, you know, one guy for 150 bucks. So I kind of went away from that, but I missed out on both of them, but I'm kind of happy about it because now I have, you know, a good amount of fab. I've got more fab than, you know, the people who are chasing me. And so I feel pretty good about, you know, at least being able to manage, manage that fab uh, down the stretch and hopefully be able to, to hold them off. It seems like it's a, a pretty interesting cost benefit analysis when you're talking about Dustin May and the rationale for bidding what you did, which I thought was smart. And in hindsight, of course, you wish you'd have gone a dollar more and, and picked up Dustin May. And while it's important to have fab for the rest of the way, it seems like it's pretty unlikely that another Dustin May is going to come along in time for, for you to benefit from that extra uh, extra money that you saved by not getting Dustin May. How did you calibrate the cost-benefit of May in the hand versus the maybe in the bush? Yeah. Well, I think there's like a, there's a few factors that go into it. Number one is like, what do you think the bid is going to be that you need to win? And so essentially what I looked at, I looked at the fab that remaining teams had, I wanted to make sure that I was higher than my closest competitors. Um, so making sure that I was going to keep, keep them from, from getting, uh, the player. Um, and then I then wanted to look up at, at, and kind of think through the thought process of what, um, of what, what the players who had more fab than me might consider doing, you know, cause they were probably having a similar analysis of, okay, 
there's all these players and I need to pick a point that's above these guys that I'm probably going to be in competition with who are active in fab still, but also leaving myself with a little bit of, a little bit of room. And so I felt like, you know, I felt like that, that one eleven. you know, I, I don't like to do zeros or fives. Uh, that's just like a rule that I have around five, uh, around fab. So I very rarely will do that, if ever, um, which I guess is a little bit of like a hint to my competition of what they should put uh, for their fab. So maybe I'm going to have to go to the fives and zeros, uh, you know, moving forward. But I didn't want to do that. So I thought around 110 was good. And then I was like, ah, let's let's bump it up one, you know, to that 111 number. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I missed out on it. And the thing is, like, my general approach there, too, is... With Dustin May, he's a really good pitcher, right? If you look at his projections rest of the season, you know, I think his ERA was like 3-2-4. His whip was like in the 1-1s. He was going to average a strikeout per inning. He's on the Dodgers, so wins should should be possible. But he's only going to get seven starts, right? And it was six starts at that point because he had already thrown one start. You know, all it takes is one or two bad starts in six or seven starts. And... He's not the player you thought he was going to be. And miraculously playing the Marlins for the second time, you know, he had a rough second outing and, you know, he got, I think he gave up five earned runs or something like that in five innings or four innings or something. Um, and, you know, as a result of that, like, you know, um, all it takes is one more bad outing and he's going to be a bad pickup. And I think that's one of the things, especially like with these small samples that we're working with is the best hitter in the world can have a bad month. And the worst hitter in the world can have a good month, right? And 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 so obviously the the probability of that happening is smaller, but it's still possible. And so when you take a number of different uh, approaches, you know, or, or a number of different lottery tickets, you know, the chance that one of those is going to come through, you know, is higher just from a probability perspective. And so that's how I comfort myself in losing out at Dustin May is being able to uh, explain it like that. So, you know, again, I would love to have Dustin May on that team. It would have fit a really big need, um, but I'll just have to play matchups down the stretch. And I got lucky. I got Brian Bellow instead and he had a rough first start, but then he had a great second start. So I got my win. I got my seven or eight K's for the week and uh, I got a decent, decent ratios as well because of that last start that Bellow had. So I got lucky there and I'll just hope to get lucky in, in kind of playing the wire uh, down the stretch. And you never know who's going to get dropped. You know, it could be that somebody has really good starting pitching and they need closers. So they end up dropping guys. I mean, Tyler Anderson was dropped in one of my leagues because somebody has such good race ratios and such a big win lead that they chose the worst starting pitcher that they had and, uh, you know, and moved on from him. So. You never know what's going to happen, and and I should have the hammer moving forward. So let's let's hope that's the case. You said on the pod that you dropped Wander Franco in a league, and this is a discussion that's really been happening a lot in the podcast environment and in the touting business on the web. Do you drop a good player, and when do you drop a good player? And you decided that Wander Franco, who is a good player, that he just had to go. What was the thought process? Yeah, so it was easier to do it for Wander Franco in that particular league. I actually didn't have him over the course of the season. I had just picked him up a, a week before to try to get him before he came off the IL, before the prices got exorbitant. So I had him on my team, but he had a setback. He had a he had a wrist injury. He actually had another setback since then. So I, I didn't have a problem kind of um, moving on from him, but I'm generally aggressive in cutting players for the same reason. It's kind of like the... 
like Aussie Albies is a really good example of this. Um, and I was actually in on Albies uh, like a month ago or so, but you try to time that exact, you know, when does that player, when is that player going to come back? When do I need to bid on him, you know, to pick him up um, where the price is low and it bakes in the risk that, that he's not going to be back. Well, you know, it's now almost middle of September. We thought Albies was going to be back in late August. So you, you kind of try to bake that in. And I think the question that I oftentimes ask myself, and sometimes it bites you, like I dropped Freddie Peralta, you know, in a big league, you know, when he was first injured and, and, you know, I'm missing out on a little bit of good Freddie Peralta here down the stretch. But the analysis that I always do is, okay, how long are they projected to be out? How much time does that leave? I've got to factor in that normally guys don't actually come back when they're expected. Normally it's a couple weeks afterwards. You know, if they have any type of setback, then you're looking at an additional amount of time. And not only does that assume that they're going to come back, but it also assumes that they're going to come back and they're going to play at their usual performance, that there isn't some lingering injury that's going to cause their performance to drop or just sheer variance. You know, sometimes players just get unlucky for, for a month. Um, and so with Albies, it was like, you know, if he's coming back in late August, you know, is it, um, you know, uh, you, he essentially has a month to be good. Um, and I don't know that's, that's necessarily going to happen. It was an injury to his foot. So what if he still has lingering issues with that foot? He can't plant it in the same way. You know, it impacts him, his ground ball rate, shoots up, whatever it is. So I'm generally aggressive when it comes to dropping guys. Cause I think there's just too many things in that list where the answer is no, you know, or the answer is not a good one. And the player doesn't end up being what you want them to be. So I'm generally pretty aggressive when it comes to that. Um, similarly, last year, like with with some guys, I, I kind of moved on early and it ended up working out. So sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But I think as long as your process is right, as long as you're thinking through it, you know, then uh, then you know you do what you got to do. As far as big buys versus roster maintenance buys, which is something you discussed earlier. What's your usual fab strategy when you're starting the season versus when you're in it? Yeah. Um, I think like, uh, my approach is fairly similar throughout in the sense that, you know, with pitchers, I'm very, so because I do that heavy pitching approach early on in the season, I'm generally not in the market for too many, like two star pitchers, you know? What I'm generally doing is analyzing those metrics that I shared and trying to identify guys that I actually think from a pitching point, from a pitching standpoint, it could be right. They've got two step and it's Marlins and somebody else. Right. Um, but that's, those are normally pretty competitive bids, especially early in the season when people are a little bit more aggressive. So it's harder for me to get there, but generally I have an advantage over people in terms of the depth of my starting pitching and how good that starting pitching is. So what I'm really looking to do is churn those hitters. And so what I'm looking at is, you know, generally like, is a guy playing, you know, like plate appearances. So I'll search by plate appearances over the last seven days, over the last 14 days. I want to get a guy who's playing every single day or looking at the schedule to identify weak matchups or identify where a guy who's in the strong side of a platoon is going to get, you know, all four games the first half of the week. I really like break it down very week by week because honestly, like when you're picking up guys from the waiver wire, for the most part, you can't assume that a player is going to be really, really good. Like you're hoping to get lucky, right? You're hoping to get the Adolis Garcia from last year. Um, you know, you're just hoping to get lucky and that a guy is going to have a, a really hot stretch. But generally, I'm looking week to week based on schedule, based on matchups, um, based on plate appearances, based on team, where they're hitting in the lineup. 
that's generally how I'm approaching Fab. But there will be certain guys where maybe it's a starting pitcher, like um, Jeffrey Springs is a guy that I picked up in all of my leagues except for one, um, all of my competitive Fab leagues um, except for one. And the reason why is that I saw the swinging strike rate. I saw the success. I knew from the past, even two years ago when he was a reliever with the Red Sox, his ERA wasn't that good, but he had a like 17% swinging strike, right? So he had the pitches to be successful. He was on the raise, so you're going to get good defense. They know how to kind of work to a pitcher's strengths. And so I, I went after him. He had had a good starts against the Blue Jays and the Angels when the Angels actually had a good offense. And so in those instances, I'm going to be a little bit more aggressive. I'm going to be in the $30, $40 range, something like that. Even if I don't think, even if I think that other got, other other players in the league aren't going to be that aggressive. If I want a guy, I'm going to go after him, not in the $150 range or the $100 range, but in that kind of like middle range. Um, and so that's kind of how I'm approaching it oftentimes is like with the pitchers, I'm really looking for a guy who either has an elite matchup or a guy who I think can be, there's something, whether it's the velocity increase or pitch mix change or role change that, that has me intrigued. But on the hitters, I'm really working on a week-to-week -week basis from the start of the season, trying to grind out those plate appearances and then hoping I get lucky, you know, hoping that I get the Jake McCarthy, um, you know, hoping that I get the Lars Newt bar, you know, those guys that kind of work themselves, they play themselves into a stronger role um, or a known role where I know when I want to have them in the lineup and when I don't. On that same podcast, uh, Toby, you discussed something that I hadn't heard before, but I've heard a lot since. I wonder if you've uh, started a groundswell of interest in the short week at the end of the season. Ordinarily, of course, the season ends on a Sunday because of the late start and uh, all of the rainouts and what have you, I think, or might even have been scheduled. But we're going to end in the middle of a week this season, which means that there's going to be one last four-day fab period uh, you said chaos will ensue. And I thought that was funny. What did you mean when you said that? Yeah. I mean, I, I hadn't really thought about it until we brought it up on the podcast, but what I liken it to is, is, is for anybody who's played uh, Yahoo league um, Yahoo. If you have an innings pitch limit, um, what you can do is you can get within like an inning or two of the innings pitch limit. And then you can have nine pitchers go and Yahoo has no way of, of saying, oh, this guy threw one inning and you hit your limit, you don't get to start these other guys because it works on a day-to-day -day basis. So you can actually blow past that innings limit. So you can get like 30, even like up to 30 innings beyond that by using that. And it's going to be something similar where you're coming down the stretch. And number one, not a lot of people are going to have a lot of fab left. I mean, look at your fab leaves, especially NFBC. Guys are in the 30s, they're in the 20s, they're in the teens now, right? Now you're going to go into that last week and if you're down in K's and you have a lot of fab, you're literally going to be able to add nine starting pitchers that are going that week. Um, and that, that can, that can make a huge difference. You're also, you know, going to be able to, you know, there's probably going to be quite a few double headers because any games that are postponed between now, you know, and then, or any time that week are going to be played. Right. Um, although actually maybe the double headers won't be so much of an issue, but you can get guys, that have four games instead of three games. You can target the teams that are either way out of contention and you know that they're going to go with a similar lineup because they're playing their young guys, or you can go with the team that's in contention and you know they're going to play those guys for four games, right? And so that, I think, is going to have a huge difference 
Um, and then there are going to be the situations where a guy's scheduled to start and doesn't start, or, you know, they, they don't play, you know, a player that last week of the season, just to rest him, whatever it is. I think there's going to be huge swings, those last four games. And I think being able to have the hammer for those last four games is going to be a really, really valuable thing for people because you're going to be able to see very clearly what it is that you need with four, three, four games left and be able to attack that in a really real way. And so it's going to be really fascinating to see, you know, kind of how that, how that plays out. Cause yeah, I can't remember something like this happening. It's like having the 164, 63rd game, but times four. Um, so it's going to be fascinating. It's also a bummer. I love that Sunday where all the games start at the same time and you know exactly what you need and you're tracking it. Like every play is so vital. Um, so I'm still going to take off that Thursday. Um, or I think it's a Thursday. I'm still going to take off that Thursday or Wednesday. I can't remember what it is. And, um, and, uh, and just try to enjoy that last day and, and see what happens. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with Toby Gavin of the Bat Flip Crazy Podcast. And Toby, as you might know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. And since we're so near the end of the season and looking ahead to 2023, especially those of us who are not chasing any kind of penance, I have to say I'm not chasing a pennant. Uh, we talked about this before we started the uh, the interview, but uh, I keep trying right to the end. I'm trying, I'm in sixth and I'm going to try really hard to finish fifth. And, and I think everybody should, but for the most part, a lot of people are looking at it to 2023 now. So let's look at some boons and banes for next year, based on what they've done this year. We're going to see some changes. Let's start with your boons. These are players you think are going to represent good value in 2023 in the American league. Let's start with a boon batter. Yeah, you want to know something? And I'm realizing that I sent you two NL hitters instead of one AL hitter and one NL hitter. But I'll go with who I listed just because I think it's interesting. Sure. This is not an AL boon. But um, I think Tyler O'Neill um, is going to be somebody who I think the general consensus around baseball is that um, he uh, he has not been um, very good. And I think that's that's obviously accurate. But the thing about guys with Tyler O'Neill's profile um, is that the power and the speed is still there. So he only has 355 plate appearances. The, the, the batting average is low at 228, but by no means in today's climate is that awful, right? Like that's not, you know, it's slightly below the average, which is kind of pathetic to say. But when you look at the reason for that, you know, his BABIP is down at 271. Uh, career, he's a 319 Babbitt guy. So there's been a little bit of lack of luck there. We also know that he struggled with injury uh, early on in this year. He had some shoulder issues, which I think was limiting his power potential. But even in those 355 plate appearances, he's got 13 home runs and 11 steals. So even with like a decent, you know, uh, you know, 250 plate appearances, you're looking at a 2020 guy. And that Babbitt is really causing a lot of it. His O swing is actually the second lowest it's been in his career at 30.4%. So it's, it's better than his league average. His contact rate is also 6% better uh, than it's been at any uh, better, better than his career average um, as well. So he's improved his contact. He's improved his, the quality or the, the pitches that he's swinging at. And what's been impacted is the quality of his contact. And I think that goes back to the injury that I mentioned before. You know, the hard hit rate is down. You know, but his barrel rate's still 11.5%, which isn't too shabby. He's only got the 13 home runs, but it comes on 26 barrels. So there's been a little bit of bad luck there in terms of his barrel to home run rate. 
Um, and again, he's been injured. So I think, you know, again, like I think next year, there's no reason to believe that he's a different hitter, right? In, in some ways, he's a better hitter than he was last year. The, the luck just hasn't necessarily been on his side. And I think we're starting to see that play out this year. He's more healthy. He's hitting at the top of the lineup. He's gotten himself hot, you know, a little bit over the last couple of weeks. And I wouldn't be surprised to, to see him have a really good um, September um, and early October. And I'm not sure if that's going to be enough to kind of carry him to where he was going in last year's draft. So maybe he falls back into that, you know, um, you know, sixth, seventh round range, you know, um, next year, because people assume that he's had this really bad year, that he's a batting average drain. But I kind of like a lot of what I, I've seen from Tyler O'Neill. So uh, because I at, totally flubbed the assignment and put two NL hitters in here, he's going to be my AL boon which I don't know if I'm allowed to do that or not, Patrick, but uh, that's my explanation for it. Yeah, it's all right. Uh, things like that happen all the time. Uh, but you said you have another National League batter, Boone. Let's hear it. My next one, and and I actually had this on the list before he hit two home runs yesterday, um, and that's Max Muncy of the Dodgers. Um, you know, Muncy, uh, he's one of he's got one of the lowest BABIPs um, in all of baseball. And I don't mean to be like rudimentary and looking at Babbitt, but I think it, you know, the luck, the luck numbers are the Babbitt and the home run per fly ball. I forgot to mention Tyler O'Neill's home run fly ball rate is about five or 6% lower than it's been throughout his career. And maybe there's some ball explanation of that, but I don't think that explains um, all of it entirely. When you look at Max Muncy, he's got a 221 Babbitt, you know, career, his Babbitt isn't that great at 256. He's got the 192 batting average, but the combination of that low Babbitt with, you know, a home run per fly ball rate, that's 8% lower you know, than his career total at 13.4% down from 21.1% um, for Max Muncy. The combination of balls not leaving the yard um, and getting and staying in, in play and then having the lower BABIP is really bringing that batting average down. Now, I don't think he's going to have a good batting average, but you can see kind of throughout his career, the BABIP drives a lot of whether he's super successful or not. You know, in 2019, he had a 283 BABIP, he hit 251. You know, in 2020, he had a 203 Babbitt and he hit 192. In 2021, he had a 257 Babbitt, he hit 249. And then this year, he's got 221 and 192. He's still got the multi position eligibility at second base and third base. And the quality of contact is actually pretty, pretty similar to what it has been. His barrel rate's at 14%. He's got 38 barrels and 18 home runs. So less than one, one uh, home run per every two barrels. League average this year is about 55%. And so again, he's been uh, unlucky there. I think he was also coming back from that um, uh, from that injury. He didn't have surgery, but he he I think he tore his UCL or something like that happened in his elbow that had him miss the back end of last year. And I think he's starting to find his groove. You know, the key is how far these guys are actually going to fall in drafts. Drafters are so sharp these days that oftentimes you know they'll look at something like the BABIP and the home run per fly ball rate, and they'll figure that the guy's going to get some some you know, positive regression or just hit towards, you know, regression towards the mean. And so again, I really like Muncie. If he falls back in that like 150 to 200 range next year, because of, because of that poor performance, I'm going to be all over it, especially with the way that home runs have increased in value this year, you know, in previous years, when the ball was flying out of the yard, they weren't as valuable and steals really won the day next year. If the ball stays the same home runs are going to have a lot of value when it comes to player uh, player value uh, heading into draft. So I, I like Muncie as a boon as well. If the ball stays the same. <laughs> Boy, we never yeah. know about that really, do we? Uh, yeah. Over to the mound, how about an American League pitcher who could be a boon for 2023? There's two White Sox that I was kind of debating. Um, 
going with in, in this particular instance. The first was Lucas Giolito. You know, um, I don't know if people have have seen this, but uh, there was an article that came out in The Athletic um, about how Lucas Giolito had COVID earlier in the year, and he just hasn't felt the same since he's had it. And we've seen that with a few players like Yohan Moncada, Austin Meadows, where they just really um, weren't weren't able to overcome, you know, COVID and, and kind of the impact that it had on their bodies. And so that was one guy, but then I dug into the numbers and one guy who just jumps out at me as being absolutely phenomenal recently is Lance Lynn. He's been really, he's been really unlucky, like from an ERA perspective, uh, the ERA I think is in the fours this year, but man, if you look at his, his last 10 games and you look at the metrics that I like to pay attention to, you know, his in zone contact, and so the average for in-zone contact rate is around 84%, 84, 85%. You know, his is at 78.7%, which is a really elite in-zone contact rate. His O-swing, which is usually an, a little bit of an issue for Lynn, is up at 38%. League average is between 30 and 31%. His K rate over his last 10 games is at 31.1%, league average being between 23 and 24%. His walk rate is at 2.1%. Um, so he's got a close to 30% K minus walk rate over his last 10 games. Lance Lynn does his swinging strike rate is the best that it's been over a 10 game, uh, average in the last three years at 14.8%. And one of the reasons why that's happened is he started throwing a slider, um, for the first time, at least in the last three years. Um, and that slider has been his, his best pitch by far 22.6% swinging strike rate. 38.6% O swing in zone contact rate at 66.7%. I mean, an absolutely dominant pitch. So you factor in all of that. And I mean, I, I had no idea. Uh, I mean, I'm all over Lance Lynn. Again, people are probably going to notice this. He's probably going to go similar to where he went last year. But, you know, if he, if he can produce those numbers over the course of a full season, which is always the challenge, right? Um, even if he can provide close to that, you're looking at, you know, maybe a top 10, top 15 pitcher over the course of a full season. The thing that jumped out at me over that last 10 game review, 60 and a third innings, five walks, which is, you know, it's a really astonishingly low walk rate and something that guys like him, it's kind of something we seem to come to expect for pitchers who are aging and he'll be 36 next year. So do you have any concerns about the age? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely the age, and there's definitely the um, there's definitely the injury. I mean, you know, he had a couple injuries this year, so you always got to factor that in. But you just hope again, it's always going to depend on like what where he's going in drafts and what the value proposition is. But you know, I think that's probably going to drop his his draft cost a little bit. You no, know? I think the age, the injuries. You know, you have you have some folks that are going to avoid anybody who had any type of injury. They're going to avoid you know the older pitchers. And so in that particular case, I mean, that could make him a, a draft day value. And, and oftentimes drafters are good at kind of baking in, in what that is. Also pay attention to spring training velocity, any spring training updates in terms of how he's doing health wise, you know, but the one thing that about Lynn, that's so interesting is he, you know, he's like a three fastball guy. He throws a four seam, he throws a cutter, he throws a, a sinker, and now he's developed that slider. And so, um, I, I'm still like, I know what the ceiling could be for him. And I think that that will probably be worth taking the risk on the health and the age. 
Yeah, as you said, when you see a, a kind of performance that jumps out at you, then you start looking in under the hood, and it seems like there's a lot under the hood here with Lance Lynn that justifies this kind of performance. Uh, somebody who hasn't been performing so well is your National League pitcher Boone for 2023. Yeah, I'm going to go with Sean Manaya here, and this one's always really tough. I feel like when there's there's oftentimes like just this wave of either hype for a guy because he's pitching so well and you look at him and you're like, I can't see how this guy could be, could ever be bad. Right. Like, like Corbin Burns is a good example, had a really low BABIP, had a really low home run per fly ball rate, um, you know, and was just dominating, but he's been doing it for so long. Now you're like, this is just who this guy is. Regression is not going to come for him. And we've seen over the last couple starts that it can really, you know, come for anybody. Similarly with a guy like Manaya, who's just been God awful the last little bit, it's kind of like, you know, how is this guy going to be good again? Like what, what's going on? But when you look at him, like it's a little confusing, right? Um, he's got a 527 ERA and a 136 whip. Here's a guy who over his career has a 123 whip and a very low walk rate, you know, but then you look at the numbers, right? His K minus walk rate is still at 15.8%, which is better than league average. League average for starters is probably between like around 13, 14%. So he's better than league average there. His swinging strike rate at 12.1% is the second best it's been in his career and only 0.2 below where it was last year. You know, his first pitch strike rate is down a little bit, but not too much. His O swing is down a little bit, but not too much. Still better than league average. His in-zone contact rate is better than league average over the course of the full season. And when you look at his performance over the last um, five games, it's actually slightly better um, uh, than that across the board. Uh, but then you look at him, he's got the 308 BAB, 304 BABIP, which isn't that strange. I mean, it's it's higher than his career average, and it's much higher than the league average this year. But it's not like all that that out of the ordinary. But it just seems like he's been a guy where, I think he's had three starts this year where, you know, it's not that he's like, I mean, he's walking some guys, but he gives up five or six singles, you know, in a single inning, you know, and that's what ends up being like, I think in this last game, that's what's happened to him. I don't think he made it out of the second inning, giving up like eight earned runs. And it was not because he was like, there was anything particularly bad that was happening. It was just like, he just kept on getting, giving up hits. Um, his home run per nine at 1.69, despite the ball and the overall environment being worse, that's by far the worst of his career. His career is 1.25. So you're looking at close to, you know, like 0 0.5, 0 0.45, you know, worse than his, you know, career average. And so when I look at those, those types of marks, I look at his strand rate, which is at 66%, which is, you know, again, about six and a half percent lower than um, his career average. Um, so all of those kind of uh, metrics that I would say are, are luck metrics are, are things that have gone the wrong way for him. His home run per fly ball rate is the worst that it's been in his career, despite, you know, the, the ball, the overall league context being the best um, it should be in his career. And so I can't really point to why Sean Manaya has been bad. Yes, his velocity has dipped down to 91.1 from 92.2 last year, but that 92.2 was close to a career high. The 91.1 would be, uh, not counting last year, would be the best that he's had since 2017. So I can't really point to a reason why he's been as bad as he's been, but he's been so bad that he's likely to fall really far in drafts heading into next year. And I think for that reason... Um, I will probably at be after Manaya, and he's got a great context on the Padres, a good hitters park, a good team, a good offense. Um, you know, relatively smart coaches. I think maybe I don't know. I'm starting to doubt that for the Padres, honestly, with with the performance of a lot of their players. But um, 
yeah, so I think Sean Manai is one guy I think is going to be a boon for next year uh, where his draft price is going to be. And for anybody who's looking at it, I'm suspicious about this left on base percentage or strand rate, as we call it at Baseball HQ. As you said, first of all, his left on base percentage rate is very low. So that's something that I think we need to look at because I'm curious about whether his relievers have let in some of those runs. I I was looking Mm -hmm. earlier this year, I have Jose Barrios on a couple of teams and his strand rate was very low and I looked into it and there's a league average for how many bequeathed runners score and I forget what it is, it's around 30%. And for Barrios, it was like 60%. The relievers were letting his run score at twice the, the league rate. And I thought, well, that can't last because those relievers won't get to keep pitching if they keep allowing runs to pile up in this way. And I wonder when we look at Sean Manaya if that's a possibility. And as you said, the other thing is the home run per fly ball rate just looks weird compared to the rest of his career. And so that's something else I think people need to dig into maybe on the stat cast where you can look at how many parks would this home run have been a home run in, those kinds of things. Although San Diego's pretty favorable for pitchers in that regard, I think. Uh, let's move on to your Banes in the American League. Uh, who's a batter who could be a Bane for 2023? Yeah, um, so for my AL hitter who's a Bane, I'm going to go with Andres Jimenez. Um, of the Guardians. You know, Jimenez has had an incredible season. I mean, I drafted him two years ago, you know, expecting this type of season from him. I mean, he's put it together this year when when not as many people were expecting it. But when I look at the underlying metrics, I mean, he, you know, because of the speed, because of the general approach, I think he's going to have a higher than league average Babbitt. But, you know, he's only at 800 plate appearances for his, for his career. He's at a 328 career Babbitt. His Babbitt this year is 355, you know, which is really keeping that batting average up at 303. I don't think he's going to be a negative batting average necessarily, but I don't think he's going to provide that elite level of batting average on a on a consistent basis. You know, his approach at the plate, um, you know, uh, uh, O swing for his career at 40.6 percent, so he's chasing bad pitches, which I think is going to limit a little bit of the quality of contact that he's got. And then he's he's got a 21 he's got a 19.6% K rate this year even though his overall contact rate is right around league average at 75.2%. So that seems a little bit lucky for me. So I think there's a couple drivers that will drive that batting average down and I can see, I, you can see that in some of his projections. Like the bad X for instance has him at a 260 projected batting average. I can definitely see him in that 260 range. Actually uh, all but zips have him in the 260 range for batting average which will definitely hurt the the value. Um, and then I also think the home runs are a little bit of a mirage. So he's got 15 home runs on 22 barrels. So about three quarters of his home run of, of his barrels are becoming home runs. League average is around 55%. There's potentially some, you know, idea that maybe he's good at pulling the ball in the air when he does do that, because, you know, he's a, he's a little bit more of a contact guy than usual, but we don't have a large enough sample size to believe that he's going to be able to, to do that on a consistent basis, or at least for me to bank on him being able to do that on a consistent basis. And so if he's more at that, you know, like 55% instead of the 75%, you're looking at a guy who's at like 12 home runs, you know, instead of, uh, instead of 15. And while that's just a few, I think that that's uh, significant. And so then when you consider the drop in batting average, the fact that he's not a good OBP guy, cause he's chasing a ton, he's going to get on base less. You see that the that the Guardians have not been shy about platooning him in previous years. So I could easily see him falling into a platoon. I could see that OBP instead of being 371, being more in the 320, the 330 range. So that's fewer still on base opportunities. So I think there's a reason to believe that 
you know, across the board, we're going to see a much worse player um, and potentially a platooned player uh, next year in Andres Jimenez. Around a 40% pull rate, which is not that unusual. So whatever he's doing to hit the ball over the fence, I wonder if it's park related or something like that, but you're right. The power metrics don't seem to align very well with the home runs. Uh, over to the National League, who's a batter you think could be a bane? This one's going to be a little, uh, maybe a little controversial. I don't know. And I don't know if I'm, if I a hundred percent believe in it, but I'm going to go with Manny Machado. Um, I was looking at that, uh, the draft that happened, um, recently, as I mentioned before, like that, um, Rob DiPietro, um, uh, pulled together with a bunch of great players in the fantasy industry. So no criticism at all of, of the picks, but I saw that he went early in the, in the second round. And so with Machado, he's hitting 300 this year, but he's got a 339 BABIP, um, which is close to 40 points higher than his career average. It would be easily the highest BABIP of any year in his career. He's also only got seven steals this year. And guess what percentile Manny Machado's sprint speed is this year? 20th? Yep. Oh, no kidding. It's 23rd. 23rd percentile um, in sprint speed. So he's not stealing as much. And one thing, too, to consider in this is given the Padres lineup, you know, the lineup that they've been able to assemble and the heavy hitters, um, you know, it, it is our steals going to be as much a part of his uh, his portfolio moving forward? He's also hitting that magic 30, 30th year where uh, those steals tend to dry up a little bit. And then when you look at his last four seasons, you know, he's got the five, the six, although that's the shortened season and seven, and he's got the 12 in there, but really like, you know, the average is, is below uh, 10 steals per year. And then when you look at his home run metrics, he's got 26 home runs this year, which is great, but they come on 39 barrels. So about two thirds, you know, uh, about two thirds, exactly two thirds of his barrels have become home, home runs. Um, and typically he's actually below league average when it comes to barrels per home runs. There was an analysis that was done about the backspin that certain players put on balls and Machado had, had one of the worst, um, for, for some reason. So I don't believe that the home runs are going to be as real. And then I think one of the other concerning pieces, and again, I don't know if he's been injured or something. He's had a seven mile per hour decrease in his max exit velocity. His max exit velocity this year is 112.4. That's down from 119.6 last year. Um, and it's the lowest max EV that he's had in his career, um, right around what he had in 2019 with 112.6. Uh, so you see some de deterioration there um, in his quality of contact. You also see his O swing has been progressively getting worse over the last three years. His contact rate... Um, uh, is down from the last couple years as well. So I think across the board, we're seeing a little bit of a skill decline. And so that skill decline, you know, with the age that he's entering, you know, in, in, in his thirties now, and then the, the good luck that he's had this year. Um, I think that, um, I don't think we're going to see the same ceiling from Machado where I'm a little bit torn on the pick is, you know, with, if, uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. is back for most of next season um, if Juan Soto's there next season, it's hard to argue with the runs and RBI still being there. So even if he's more of like a low twenties, you know, like 22 home runs, you know, seven steals, and then he's still got a hundred and a hundred with a 270 batting average. You know, that's still not a bad season, but I just think that the ceiling's a little bit lower um, than what we maybe have seen in the past. Over to the mound. How about an American league pitcher who could be a bane? 
Yeah, I actually really struggled with this one. Um, you know, I, I, part of it is because uh, Rob DiPietro, who was your guest last year uh, or last week, uh, mentioned Alec Manoa as his um, as his his ale bane, and I would I would second that. I think that Manoa of all the you know, really elite guys this year, I think shows the most holes in his profile. So I couldn't go with that to have, you know, Manoa go, you know, two weeks in a row. So the guy that I'm going to go with, and again, I'm not sure exactly where he's going to go in drafts, but is, is Patrick Sandoval. Um, Sandoval's got a 302 ERA. I think that's a little bit misleading given he's got a 134 whip. The walks continue to be an issue for him. He's got a close to 10% walk rate, which is right in a line with his career average. His K minus walk rate is 14.3%. We've seen a dip uh, from last year, at least in that swinging strike rate, still a really good 13.1%, but not necessarily elite. I do like the in zone contact rate being better than league average and the O swing being much better than league average. But despite all those things, you know, he's still struggling with, uh, with walks. Um, and then I think the big thing for me is one of the reasons why that ERA has stayed so low is even though he's got a lot of runners on base, his home run per nine is down at 0.44. His home run per fly ball rate is at 5.7%. Uh, he's not giving up a ton of barrels, but he has given up 18 and he's only given up six home runs. So only one third of the barrels that he's given up have become home runs. If that was closer to league average, you're adding four more home runs onto the equation. Chances are there, there might be runners on base uh, when that happens and you see that ERA go up. And so if that ERA is closer to his uh, career average, you know, in the mid threes, you're looking at a guy who's got a mid threes, high threes ERA. You're looking at a whip for his career at one, three, one. The guy that he reminds me a little bit of is actually Eduardo Rodriguez, a guy who, despite, you know, all the fandom that he's gotten has never had a whip uh, better than I think one, two, four or one, two, eight. And I think Sandoval is just, that's who this guy is. He's going to be a high whip guy where the ERA fluctuates depending on what the home runs look like in any given year. Um, and I think it's just too risky of a profile. Um, and I think there's enough hype around him where he's going to be going, you know, around pick 150 or so in drafts. And I think there will be better value propositions without the, the low floor, um, especially with the injury history than Sandoval. And finally, how about a National League pitcher who could be a bane for 2023? Yeah, I'm, I, this one pains me because I'm a huge fan of his. I, I've had a lot of him in the last two years, but I'm going to go with Eric Lauer of the Brewers. Um, Lauer, uh, you know, after he had such a strong start to the season, but if you were to take out that part of the season, not like you can do that. Everybody's got great, great parts of the season and bad parts of the season, but his, he was truly incredible for four or five starts. You know, his swinging strike rate was in the high teens. Um, he was striking out 10 guys per game, you know, since that period of time though, he really hasn't been, you know, the same pitcher. Um, you know, the walk rate, uh, has crept up. It's at 8.6% over the course of the full season. That's the highest of any full season that he's had, um, since his rookie season, you know, the swinging strike rate is down at 9.5%, despite having a couple starts where he had 20 plus percent, um, home run per fly ball or, um, swinging strike rates. His home run per nine is at 1.58. And if you ever watch him, I mean, he gives up a ton of fly balls. Um, and this is, this is even with the, the improved, you know, baseball, at least from a pitcher standpoint, his BABIP is low. It's lower than it's been for his career average. He's going to have a lower BABIP because of that fly ball rate, but he's also got a career high strand rate at 80.9%. 
I think all of those things, taking out like the truly elite best five starts of his career, uh, looking at the pitcher he's become, he's really difficult to start. Um, he gives up a ton of home runs. He's now allowing a ton of base runners because of that walk rate. It's just way too uh, dangerous of a profile for me. But the full season numbers are nice, right? 1.54 ERA, 1.22 whip, 134 Ks, you know, and that comes after a 319 ERA and 114 whip last year. So if you look at those numbers, then you may be thinking, hey, this is a guy who has two consistent years of performance. For me, I say, man, this guy, this guy could get absolutely lit up next year. So I'll be staying away from Eric Lauer probably for for the cost that you're going to have to pay in drafts next year. Toby Gavins, Boone's, uh, Tyler O'Neill of St. Louis, Max Muncy of the Dodgers, Lance Lynn of Chicago White Sox, and Sean Manaya of San Diego. His Baines, Andres Jimenez of Cleveland, Manny Machado of San Diego, Patrick Sandoval of the Angels, and Eric Lauer of Milwaukee. Toby, remind us where our listeners can keep up with your work. You can find my work on my podcast, uh, Batflip Crazy Fantasy Baseball um, is the name of that podcast. I do that on a weekly basis with uh, Bubba from the Bench with Bubba podcast. We usually in season, we'll do a fab review, kind of diving into the most added players. And then we also in the off season, uh, we take a little bit of a break for, uh, for October baseball, but then we'll start back up. We'll do position reviews and previews um, heading into the next season and over the winter. So you can follow there. And then on Twitter, I'm at BatFlipCrazy. Um, and really appreciate the opportunity to be here, Patrick. Big fan of Baseball HQ, um, your pod, everything that uh, Baseball HQ does is is really, really great. I'm super sad because I'm not going to be able to go to First Pitch Arizona this this year. I um, I have a work conference, but um, would highly recommend folks attend that. It's a phenomenal event. Well, it was terrific to talk with you. It was really interesting and it's super informative. I'm glad we could get you on. I'm sure we'll do it again in the future. And in the meantime, thanks very much. And we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Patrick. Toby Gavon hosts the Batflip Crazy Podcast. A quick break here, and then we're back with our HQ commentaries. The Frequent Flyer and Extra Innings are coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But I want to also mention the Eyes Have It Podcast. In this edition, Brent Hershey is back from the IL with a strained voice box, so he and Chris Blessing will discuss the big league debuts and expectations of Corbin Carroll, Gunnar Henderson, Hunter Brown, Spencer Steer, and Ryan Nelson, whom we talked about earlier in the show with Nick in the National League News. Brent and Chris also break down Brent's live looks at some low-A prospects, nothing low-A about Jackson Holiday, Dylan Beavers, Mason Denneberg, or Jared McKenzie. The Eyes Have It podcast, just one of the many resources at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in the big hurt column, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. 
Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up, and leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Minnesota first baseman Matt Walner is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. You may have the best natural pop in Minnesota's minor league system. With a vicious swing, harnessing his overall brute strength, according to Baseball HQ's 2022 minor league baseball analyst. Best natural pop, vicious swing, brute strength? Maybe it's all coming together for 24-year-old Minnesota Twins outfielder Matt Walder, whose vicious swing and brute strength combined to blast a 116-mile-per-hour shot at this year's Futures game. Wow. To put that in perspective, in 2022, according to MLB StatCast, only 15 balls at the major league level have been hit harder than Walder's 116-mile-per-hour digger. In fact, in the modern StatCast era, only one other Twins home run with an exit velocity of 117 miles per hour by Nelson Cruz in 2019 has exceeded Walder's Futures Game home run. Perhaps it's no surprise, then, that Walder, who was batting two ninety nine with 21 home runs at this summer's All-Star break, was promoted to AAA St. Paul on July 14th. Seems pretty obvious. However, the Forest Lake, Minnesota native has struggled somewhat through his first 44 games in St. Paul. That's why 24-year-old Minnesota Twins outfielder Matt Walder, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Although Baseball HQ's 2022 minor league baseball analyst warned on page 70 that holes in Walder's swing can be exploited by good pitchers, a closer look perhaps suggests another possibility. Walder's current splits show that he is batting a healthy 290 on the road, but a paltry 208 at home in St. Paul. So maybe he's simply pressing, playing in front of family and friends every night. After all, Walder was recognized as Minnesota's Mr. Baseball in 2016 before graduating from Forest Lake High School, which is located only about 25 miles north of the St. CHS field up Highway 61. No pressure. Even so, here's why Walder might be an excellent sleeper candidate in Dynasty Leagues and 2023 drafts. For one, Walder's home run total, 15 in 2021, was suppressed by missing two months due to a broken hammock bone. However, the power is real. Remember, Walder has consistently achieved exceptional exit velocities. Additionally, despite his high strikeout rate, Walder is still seeing over four pitches per plate appearance on average in 2022, where our research at BaseballHQ.com shows that batters who work deeper into counts tend to display more power. Plus, Walder's bat appears to be heating up. He even hit for the cycle in St. Paul on September 1st, perhaps providing multiple reasons to add 24-year-old Minnesota Twins outfielder Matt Walder is our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about Major League Baseball's new war-based bonus structure for early career pre-arbitration players. I don't know if you heard about this, but Major League Baseball's labor relations team has declared war on its most outstanding young players. 
According to ESPN baseball reporter Jeff Passan, Major League Baseball plans to use a new version of wins above replacement, better known as WAR, to allocate bonus payouts to reward players who aren't yet eligible for arbitration. Up till now, those players have been pretty much stuck for years at a minimum salary mandated in the CBA. This year it's 700000 which sounds pretty decent when you're recording top-notch, highly renowned fantasy baseball podcasts to pay the rent, and it sounds even better to me. But it's often far, far short of the economic value these players create, often during the best years of their career. The surplus value of labor, as Groucho Marx once said. That's the silliest thing I ever heard. Under the new CBA, MLB will kick $50 million into a pool, and that should excite the swimmers. The rewards will start with young pre-arbitration players who finish high in the voting for baseball's major awards. For example, winning the MVP or the Cy Young will pay a bonus of two and a half million bucks. Second place in either of those is worth a million and three quarters, third place a million and a half. Winning the Rookie of the Year is worth 750 grand. finishing second is about half a million. Once those awards are handed out, the remainder of the bonus pool is split among the 100 players in the group with the highest war. The split will not be straight up, just dividing the money by 100. Rather, the wars of all the top 100 will be added up, and each player will get a share of the pool that's proportional to his war relative to the total. The new war itself is different from both B-war and F-war known to many fantasy managers and analysts. B-war is Baseball References version, F-war is Fangraph's version, G-war is a heavy metal band, and T-war is a battle for market share between Lipton and Salada. But I digress. The MLB memo says the new war will try to be like the old wars, with hitters earning value in various categories, and will probably be pretty close to those old wars as well. Hitters will earn value in batting based on weighted on-base average, base running based on stolen bases and advances on batted balls, fielding for position players outs above average and for outfielders also throwing arms, and catchers for framing, throwing out base runners and blocking balls in the dirt. As well, there'll be a positional adjustment, which sounds like something you'd get at the chiropractor. Pitcher war combines two of the most prominent calculations, runs allowed per nine innings, which is used by baseball reference, and fielding independent pitching, which is preferred by fan graphs. Relievers will get extra credit for pitching in higher leverage situations. Suffice it to say that using WOBA, outs above average, FIP, runs allowed per nine, and leverage indices seems like a huge advance in recognizing player performance, although I dare say many analysts will argue about the presence of stolen bases and the absence of some of the other metrics like StatCast metrics. The renowned baseball analyst Russell Carlton wrote at Baseball Prospectus back in February when this idea was first floating out and excluded the idea of a made-in-MLB war formula that the plan didn't seem to recognize the necessity of updating and improving war formulas as our knowledge base grows and as Major League Baseball itself changes. He noted by way of example that war is predicated on the assumption that position players just play their primary positions, which doesn't do much to allow for the value created by multi-position guys, nor does it address extreme shifts that see Matt Chapman often playing more at shortstop than Bo Bichette. So there's still work to be done, and I'm just the guy to tell someone else to do it. But kudos, I think, are due to both Major League Baseball and to the Players Union 
for agreeing to try to put a little more analytical rigor into a process that should be as rigorous as possible to be fair to both sides. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 9th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 35 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Toby Gavon, the host of the Bat Flip Crazy podcast. Toby is obviously a fine fantasy analyst and a very interesting guy to talk with. I also want to thank James Anderson, the lead prospects analyst at Rotowire, who talked with me for an hour this week only to have that SD card corrupt and trash the whole thing. James has graciously agreed to come back for next week's show, and I can hardly wait. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Google Pods, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview with Tanner Bell from Smart Fantasy Baseball and James Anderson, the lead prospects analyst at Rotowire. Plus, we'll have all the usual great stuff, our National League and American League news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Tanner Bell and James Anderson on next Friday's Full Edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.